Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Kristen. This is Rational in Portland, where we say everything you can't say in Portland. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, our guest is Vadim Mazursky. You may remember him if you're a local Portlander as the challenger to Renee Gonzalez and Joanne Hardesty in the primary here in Portland for city council commissioner. Now he lost to Renee. Renee will continue on and face off against the incumbent, Joanne Hardesty. But Vadim has a lot of other irons in the fire. Some of you know that Portland's form of government is probably the most wild and unique forms of government of any city, certainly in the United States. And Vadim was on a commission, a charter commission, to change Portland's form of government. Many of you also know that Vadim actually resigned from the charter commission. He does not believe in the proposal that the commission is setting forth for the ballot in November. And he has actually formed a political action committee against charter reform. It's called the Partnership for Common Sense Government. You can follow them on Twitter at SensibleGovPDX. It's a great Twitter feed. It'll explain all the reasons that the charter reform measure is something you should vote no on. And we all agree that Portland's form of government is screwed up and has got to be fixed. But Vadim will explain to you why you should vote no on this ballot measure, why Partnership for Common Sense Government and people like Mingus Maps are coming up with an alternative, what those alternatives would look like, how quickly they can come up with them. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of good people involved in this Partnership for Common Sense Government. As you all know, I have a point of view. This is not, I'm not a journalist. I'm just a trial lawyer in the city. That Does that point of view change all the time? Yes. And I invite all of y'all to advance any kind of argument in favor of this charter reform proposal that would convince me to vote yes. I would love to hear about it. But my point of view, as it stands, and as Vadim will explain, is that we should vote no on charter reform. I was just at a party a fundraiser earlier this week at Thomas Lauderdale's house. He's the band leader for Pink Martini, the beloved Portland band. And we were all united under the Partnership for Common Sense Government Political Action Committee's stance on this vote no on charter reform. And there were Portlanders from all stripes there. Storm Large was there. She was the big star guest singing songs. She's against char this charter reform ballot measure. And mostly there were far left Portlanders there. So I think the majority of us in the center and frankly, even in, on the far left, are united in the idea that we should be voting no on charter reform. To the extent that you would like to vote yes or you're tempted to vote yes, please stay tuned and listen to why you should vote no from Vadim and listen to his background story. This guy has just got an incredible 
story to tell. And he's a leader in our city and in our community. And it, I just think it's it's great that he's here and doing all these wonderful things for us. So stay tuned for Vadim Mazierski. Vadim Mazierski, thank you so much for being here today. Kristen, it's a pleasure. I love your show. I've been a follower ever since uh, I believe it was TJ Browning was on your show and I've been trying to catch up on older episodes as uh, time allows. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. So the TJ Browning episode was about homelessness and I know you have a lot of thoughts about that. You expressed plenty of ideas on the campaign. One of the questions I got from listeners when they heard that you were going to be on the show is, what did you learn during your campaign about homelessness? Because I'm sure there are all sorts of things that you learned that may or may not be public or that people don't know about. So uh, one thing I learned about is the the personal stories. You, you read in the press about some of these um, incidents that happen around the city, but you also, um, on the campaign trail, hear very visceral, very personal stories about people's experiences. And some of those experiences are wonderful. There are people out there that are um, in their neighborhood associations uh, going out to homeless encampments, giving them socks, giving them water, clothing, um, and also linking them to services. But some of the experiences are, are tragic. You hear uh, people who uh, have suffered personal trauma, who have had uh, break-ins in their house, who have had their cars stolen, who have, had, who have been assaulted. And, and unfortunately, uh, I spoke with one individual whose uh, husband was murdered by a homeless individual. And, and you learn um, through that that what the city is doing is not helping enough. Uh, I'm sure that there's some people that are being helped, especially with housing vouchers. I think we're doing a really good job with that, rental vouchers. But also there's a lot of suffering going on both on individuals that are living in our streets, uh, highest uh, mortality rate in the homeless community last year, and this year we're about to surpass it again. Most of that is from uh, drug overdoses, but also uh, a lot of individuals. I mean, there was one individual who had a five-year-old daughter um, that was uh, chased by a homeless individual. Uh, Most recently in the news, at least, uh, an individual uh, kidnapped a mother with her daughter right there on Burnside uh, in, in the McDonald's. And, and you read about that and it's one thing, but when you talk to those individuals directly and you hear the frustration, you hear the pain and you hear the anguish of them having to deal with that um, oftentimes on a, on a weekly basis and, and you know that what we're doing is, is not working. Why don't we do something that instead we know works because it's been tried elsewhere rather than sort of um, experimenting with these different things that help apparently very few people. So if you were the homeless czar, what would you do, Vadim, to, to remedy this? I mean, I'm, I'm, my, I'm, my guess is it's a multi-pronged plan because it's just such a complex issue, but I'd love to hear what your ideas are based on what you learned during the campaign. Well, one of the number one things that we need to do is actually understand um, why each individual is in the street. You hear all these contrasting stories. Um, You know, Joanne Hardis in the campaign trail said that people actually had two jobs that were living in the streets, but they still couldn't afford to live um, in an apartment. And so they're living in the streets from other people. You hear about mental health being the main driver from other people. You hear about drugs and addiction. The reality is it's all sorts of stuff. I mean, we know from um, the time, uh, the, the reports that the point in time counts that more than half the people on our streets identify with drug addiction, more than half identify with mental health um, uh, impairments of various sorts. And so, um, 
we need a better system of tracking people. And um, right now uh, we have 5,000 people living on 5,000 different street corners and we don't know why we're there. So how can you provide services when you don't know why those individuals are out there? So one is uh, a better database where different people can add to that database, whether it be service providers um, or uh, individuals that uh, come in contact with people, whether businesses or otherwise. That's what happened in uh, Mississippi. That's one of the uh, uh, foundations of uh, Build for Zero is a system to understand why people are there, a system of knowing what sort of services have been provided and how to build upon those services so that people can um, uh, get back on their feet. And then the second thing is, uh, and this is part of it also, is we just can't deal with uh, a homeless population that is spread throughout Portland. Um, the sweeps, uh, you know, people are against them, and, and there's certainly some aspects that uh, are, are both good and bad on that. Uh, you know, it does allow you to uh, clean up areas that have uh, a high level of uh, trash or, or um, you know, uh, uh, other contaminants in that area. But it, uh, it just pushes them off into different parts of Portland. We need, and we can do this, I'm assured we can do this, find places for people to go, whether it's designated campsites, whether it's uh, designated RV parking spots, more shelter space, pop-up shelter spaces, um, mass shelters. Um, and I think we can, we can do that here. When I was on the campaign trail, I, I spoke with uh, a lot of individuals, both in the business community, developer community, neighborhood associations. The odd thing, and this is the disconnect, they had places where people could go. They just didn't uh, have the ear of city hall or the county commission to uh, actually get that done. Um, you know, our government is working on its own without really coordinating with some of these individuals. And so if we had a partnership between people living in Portland in their neighborhoods, neighborhood associations, uh, businesses, and said, look, let's work together. Let's find places for these people to go, uh, kind of like uh, Bybee Lakes or any of those organizations that we know are working um, and, and fund that. I'm sure we could do it. Uh, that's just not being done right now. You know, you mentioned Bybee Lakes and the Lentz Neighborhood Livability Association. A couple of their members were on the show and we're going to have a show with their board leaders. They, they're really, really promoting Bybee Lakes because it's just such a homey, family-centered shelter it's a beautiful place it doesn't look like a what you hear are filthy homeless shelters and i actually work for some of these homeless shelters and I, the ones that i work for are are very nice they're not what i'm uh hearing about from quote unquote houseless advocates as, as sort of dirty places i don't know have you toured by b lakes or any of these other places i have i have and i've spoken to alan evans on several occasions and most right. recently maybe a couple of days ago uh, and I toured Bybee Lakes before it opened, and then I toured Bybee Lakes maybe six months ago was the last time, uh, when they were almost done with their build-out, however many months ago that was. And uh, it was night and day. So, of course, when I toured it initially, it looked like a jail that had not been quite completed. Now I tour it and then there's a community garden. There were kids playing basketball in the courtyard. People were sitting around uh, the kitchen area, having a meal, talking with another, laughing with one another. Uh, it, it did not look like a place of depression. It did not look like a place of despondency. And when you look at both the cost and the benefits, 
I think it was something like $23 a night is what it costs for people to stay there. Um, and 80% of the people end up um, getting back on their own two feet, kicking the drug habit. You know, part of it is creating good habits. So they're out there working in order to pay uh, after a while, at least for uh, housing over there. And it builds those habits that are lifelong habits, you know, going to work every day, make, getting a paycheck, paying for your needs, and then trans, transitioning from being at Bybee Lakes to your own housing where those habits can come into play. Here in Portland, we're reinforcing bad habits rather than what's happening at places like Bybee Lakes where you're reinforcing the good ones. Well, and my understanding is that although Bybee Lakes has some barriers, you know, because it does have kids, so they've got to do things like screen for sex offenders. And I think you got to be sober, but they will help you. My understanding is they will help you get into a rehab program. Is that your understanding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll help you get into a rehab program. They were working on actually bringing a rehab program into Bybee Lakes. Of course, that's more money and funding that, you know, is kind of scarce over there. But um, that is exactly what they do. They provide the services that people need, but it's providing services at one place rather than trying to provide services to thousands of places across Portland. Well, and I think the majority of Portlanders, you know, people joke there there isn't a tax we don't like. I think the majority of Portlanders would be thrilled to pay for rehabilitation services, detox services for people at Bybee Lakes that are interested in that kind of assistance. Because my understanding, just from, it's just anecdotal, but my understanding from talking to listeners and talking to most Portlanders is that they actually believed that the quote unquote treatment money for Measure 110 was gonna go for that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I I got the same thing as well. You know, they didn't realize that um, the Measure 110 money uh, is, is, mostly uh, delegated to organizations that um, are harm reduction, which is providing syringes and that sort of thing. And and also, you know, honestly, there's not uh, it, the ability to hire a lot of people right away in order to provide mental health counseling services. That was not something that was being discussed when Measure 110 was passed and the, the, it was decided how to spend that money. But Portlanders, uh, you know, I moved here because Portlanders are the most compassionate, nicest people of any place I've lived in the United States and I've lived all over. People here want to help. They want to roll up their sleeves and help. They want to contribute monetarily and help. There's a lot of uh, providers in Old Town that get their money just from contributions, not necessarily from the city or the county. People are, are wonderful here, but they're not stupid also. You know, they know if their money is being spent well and they know if their money is not being spent well. And the frustration is our taxes are really high here in Portland. And then people look around and say, what are we getting for it? If we have this new homeless service tax that's bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars each year, if we have um, in the, the housing bonds, uh, there are, I believe, $850 million between Metro and the city. And yet, in the last three years, homelessness has increased by 50% here in Portland, while it's actually decreased in Washington County during that same time frame. What are we doing? How are we spending the money? What are the results that we're getting? And if we're not spending the money wisely, why are we not changing course? You know, I want to get back to homelessness because that's something everybody is interested in. But I got to tell you, it, when you talk about taxes and, and looking around and trying to figure out the value for these enormous dollars, particularly high earners are paying out. And I think a lot of these high earners don't deserve a fair amount of the vitriol that's thrown at them. Certainly people like Jordan Schnitzer, I mean, these are real, a lot of these people are pillars of Portland and really menschy people. The only reason that Bybee Lakes exists, my understanding is because of Jordan. 
Exactly, exactly. And and for the readers that or the listeners that don't know the convoluted history about that, um, there was a proposal because Bybee Lakes, the former Wabato jail, was not being used to actually convert that into a shelter model. And there have been success stories very similar to that in San Antonio and other places where uh, uh, these large shelters have been proven to help people um, uh, uh, transition into housing. And that proposal, you know, Jordan Schnitzer, I believe, uh, wanted to pay $5 million for uh, Wapato Jail. The county said no. Uh, instead, they, they said, um, you know, you can't get the services out there. You, they, they, uh, people don't want to be out there, even though we have encampments spread throughout Portland for some reason about, around Bybee Lakes. That's too far. And all these reasons why it should not work rather than how do we have a partnership between business and, and county and city governments to make it work. And so they decided to, instead of selling this um, jail uh, for the money that was offered, that they were going to auction it off, basically. And uh, they got, I believe, $4 million, something like $1 million less than Jordan Schnitzer had initially offered for that property. Well, it turned out that that individual um, uh, turned around and gave it to or sold it to Jordan Schnitzer for that same amount. So the uh, county actually got $1 million less than they could have if they had just um, sold it to Jordan Schnitzer to begin with. And now we have a facility out there, and I urge everybody to visit out there. Ellen Evans will give you a tour, or, or somebody else will. And uh, you know, look look for yourself and, and see if it's working. Talk to the people that are there and see if it's working. It really is a success story, but it's a success story that um, was independent for any public streams. And, and like you said, um, we have a lot of people that are working very hard here in Portland to. Uh, make this uh, a, a great city, you know, whether it's the Jordan Schnitzers or the Greg Goodmans or the Tim Boyles. Um, they're spending a lot of their own personal capital and they're living here in Portland. They're refusing to leave because they want to make the city better. Uh, and this whole divisive atmosphere that we have where it's us versus them, where it always has to be, uh, you know, employees versus business or it has to be east versus west or it has to be one versus the other. Uh, we can all work together. That's always been the foundation of my campaign when I ran for office is bringing people together rather than always, you know, cynically trying to divide people. Yeah, I mean, I think these loud voices that proclaim this opposite day attitude in in Portland where if you're successful, you're a bad person and we're not going to listen to you, where success is an indictment, a personal indictment of someone it's just incredibly bizarre. The idea that somebody who's successful should shut up and not be listened to and should just write more checks is, is <laughs> frankly so strange to me. And I don't understand where these people think their pet projects funding is gonna come from. Well, that's the interesting point you made there. You know, Portland um, certainly has a high tax rate. We have a lot of services here, uh, a lot of funding of nonprofit organizations um, throughout the city and the county. And where does that money come from? You know, we have also a very high housing cost in order to be able to live here in Portland. We need to have good jobs. Where do those good jobs come from? And I think vilifying uh, individuals that hire people, uh, vilifying people that are funding some of these projects, uh, vilifying individuals through their philanthropy um, who have helped Portland over the years, 
uh, doesn't help anybody at the end of things. You know, it's it's an easy cop out to say, you know, here's my line. If you make more than X amount of dollars, uh, you don't deserve a seat at the table. Um, but really, it should be about character and not about, you know, someone's uh, uh, bank account. You know, there's good people and bad people around the world. Um, and it doesn't really uh, matter to me whether they're making a lot of money or a little money. If you're a bad person, you know, certainly we need to deal with that. If you're a good person, then um, we should open our arms and embrace that opinion uh, from individual, no matter what your walk of life is. You know, along those same lines, I was just reading about this preschool measure and what a fakakta mess that is, this, this enormous tax that I think everybody was thrilled to pay, frankly, this rich, quote unquote, rich tax to fund preschools uh, throughout Portland is just, um, I mean, they were talking about how one organization was given like $600,000 and I think they have one kid enrolled under this program. I, I just, I think people are looking around and wondering where all these millions are, are going. Yeah, and, and they should, they should. You know, one, one of the, my talking points in the campaign is about accountability, and that word is being overused, and so you have to get into the details. And you look at our city, and that accountability is missing. We're spending a lot of money on homelessness. We're spending a lot of money on um, uh, uh, all kinds of issues, including getting people into housing. And when you look at how much money is being spent for some of these things, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, when the metro tax on homelessness was being proposed, I actually went to that hearing and, you know, I did the math myself. At that point in time, there were fewer people living in uh, on the streets in the metro area. And so uh, it was about $50,000 basically per homeless individual that we were asking people to pay for some sort of services. But there was no plan at the time as to where that money would go. Absolutely no plan. It was basically we're going to tax you and then we'll figure out how to pay for things later. So I testified and I'm like, just give every homeless person that $50,000. It'll allow them to be able to get into an apartment. It'll allow them to get services. If It'll help them get um, Oregon Health Plan or otherwise to get uh, medication and, and counseling. Uh, that's a lot of money. That's what a lot of people make in their normal jobs. And, and what's interesting, during that hearing, uh, a lot of the homeless people that were there to provide testimony actually applauded to that. Uh, and I, I think that we need to know how our money is being spent, and, and we just don't. Uh, and I think some reporters are doing a decent job into looking at that, especially around the uh, Climate Action Fund and things like that, where there was absolutely no accountability. And now it looks like Commissioner Rubio has announced that there might be some down the road. But so much money is coming in. Are we getting the results we need? I mean, I would expect if you go to the Joint Office of Homeless Services website, you'll be able to see, you know, exactly where the projects are going, exactly where, uh, what the results of those projects, if the funding is working. I mean, not everything is obviously going to work over time and people have to be able to make a decision as to what's not and how to stop uh, certain funding streams, but you can't find that information. Same thing with housing. You know, you hear about housing that's being built at $600 a square foot, $1,000 a square foot, low income housing that's that expensive when you talk to any developer and they can build something for $300 a square foot. And then, uh, you know, uh, with the uh, uh, preschool tax, um, once again, where's that accountability? Yeah, you know, tell us more about this Climate Action Fund, because I think a lot of people, I've received questions about this, I think a lot of people don't know what's going on with that. Talk to us more about that. Well, so it's PCEF, it's not actually the Climate Action Fund, but um, I'm not sure what the 
uh, uh, letters stand for. Um, and and so right and isn't that telling uh, well yeah and so uh, <laughs> i mean the, you're a community leader uh, and even you're not sure what this stands for portland climate exactly um, whatever fun, but uh, whatever uh, there's a lot of acronyms in this job and so the um, the money i believe that was expected to be garnered for that particular tax was 30 million dollars a year they're getting way more than that um and there was no um process in place to make sure that there was um, bookkeeping and accountability as to where that money was going, how it was going to be used, whether it was actually going to be used for projects that improve the climate. So it was supposed to be tied into uh, the Portland climate plan. Uh, There's a 2030 and a 2050 climate plan. That has not been the case. Um, There's uh, no real follow-up as to whether that money is being spent in a way that gets the results that we need. And um, the, uh, uh, the, the the Portland auditor actually came out with a report um, that was very scathing of the uh, this particular uh, funding mechanism uh, because there was no oversight uh, and it was basically up to a group of individuals to vote where the money went and very little involvement uh, from either uh, city council or otherwise to make sure that it was being spent on um, most advantageous ways. And uh, there was a lot of pushback on that report, and the report ended up getting watered down, but still a very critical report. And that re- after a while, uh, uh, there was a story, I believe it was by Shane Dixon Cavanaugh, the Oregonian, about how an individual who had not paid taxes in the past on her business ventures had actually um, been uh, uh, jailed because of uh, some issues that they had, had not delivered on promises in the past, and also mischaracterized experience, actually got a multi-million dollar award from PCEF in order to um, do things here in Portland. When that uh, story broke, then all of a sudden there was some gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands, and they ended up canceling that contract. And last I heard, that individual was actually suing Portland because of defamation. So it's it's just a mess. Um, and so if we're going to be spending, um, I believe it's ninety million dollars a year now that it's raising, you know, we want to make sure that we're actually uh, benefiting uh, people here in Portland that we're actually getting our money's worth. And and I think very importantly from a climate fund that we actually do something that helps our climate and is in line with our goals from 2030 and 2050 and that you know there's accountability and that people can see where the money is going and what the results are Uh, but you look around portland there's so much money going to these various organizations but good luck finding out what they're doing with that money or if it's a success or a failure correct me if i'm wrong but it's my understanding that the city and county and metro are three layers of government that none of these entities give a dime to something as wonderful as Bybee Lakes. Is that your understanding? That that is all funded through people like Schnitzer and donations and things? For a long time, that was absolutely true. I think right now, Bybee Lakes is getting some money from the city. I okay, think well, thank God that that's moving the in the right direction. But I, like you said, some money. I mean, it concerns me that all this money is being poured down the drain and it's not being poured into projects, like you said, that we know that work, like Bybee Lakes. Yeah, and you spoke a little bit earlier about um, uh, uh, how what would my plan be for addressing homelessness here in Portland. 
And um, you just have to look at what other cities are doing. Uh, so Houston, Texas, for instance, uh, they had a 50% decrease in homelessness, while at the same time there was a 50% increase in housing costs. So they were still able to decrease homelessness as their housing and rental costs were going up. And they did it through several ways. You know, certainly there was uh, shelter space and, and build out. And they did have a long-term plan for having a permanent housing, but they also had coordination and accountability from all the providers that were working with uh, homelessness. There was a really great article. Uh, I want to say it's uh, maybe Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post. It was in the New York Times, yeah. New York Times. And, uh, you know, and then they spoke about how there were so many different providers that were all kind of doing the same thing. And so city officials got together with these providers and said, well, you know, we need to coordinate care with all of you. You know, you're, you're being funded to do different things. Sometimes there's overlapping things that you do. You have to work better together. And, and that was a success story in, in Houston. And some of those providers had to change their missions instead of providing, you know, perhaps uh, uh, food, which was provided by other ones. They had to go in line with uh, addressing uh, linkages to housing. But they were they found a way to work together to make sure that um, the money was being spent well and it was being put to good use here in, in Portland. You know, I, I added up all the nonprofit organizations we have in Multnomah County. Uh, and specifically Portland, that were uh, helping people uh, suffering from homelessness. And to my count, there was 246. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that I was go, probably low. <laughs> there, there's, there's quite a few, uh, you know, one for pretty much every 20 people that's living in our streets. So uh, but you go to some of these meetings where uh, these policies are being discussed and there's not adequate coordination as to what these service providers are doing. And the city certainly is not adequately involved or the Joint Office of Homeless Services nor the county. Uh, there's actually a nonprofit that is being formed, uh, believe it or not, to uh, 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 coordinate with all these other nonprofits on, on their missions. So, uh, you know, there's certainly different ways to skin that cat, but, uh, you know, we need better coordination. And a nonprofit being formed to coordinate with other nonprofits. There's nothing, this is peak Portland right here. There's nothing more Portland than that. You know, you said that you've lived all over. People are interested in hearing about you, who you are. My understanding is that you're a first generation immigrant from the Ukraine. Is That's that right? correct. Uh, so it was a, a Soviet Union when my family and I left. Um, you know, uh, we, uh, we left in, uh, 78, it was about 79. By the time we got to the United States, we were stateless for quite a while. So we were allowed to leave the Soviet Union with just, uh, bare bone belongings, a few suitcases, uh, very little money that we were allowed to transfer into, um, currency that we could use abroad. Most of our belongings and money we had to leave in the former USSR. And we were stateless for a little while. You know, there's a path at that point in time for people that were able to escape the Soviet Union. So we went to Austria and then they directed us to go to Italy. And we lived in um, a small apartment with two other families there until we got permission to come to the United States. In the meantime, my, my father sold off some of his belongings. He was a, uh, a photographer and sold off um, uh, this really nice camera that he had in order to pay for our day-to-day -day needs. And we arrived in the United States, um, you know, and not speaking any English, uh, not not really knowing how to, uh, you know, maneuver all the bureaucracies and things. And luckily got some help from organizations very similar to ERCO, the Immigrant Refugee Community Organization that's here in Portland um, that helps uh, immigrants and refugees get on their feet. 
you know, my father's first job was as a coat checker uh, at other people's parties. You know, he's an engineer, but he started off, you know, obviously not speaking English, getting whatever jobs he could. Uh, my mom uh, stayed at home as a, uh, to take care of me. And then she went back to college when I was in middle school uh, to a community college to become a nurse. And so, uh, you know, we had a really rough few years, uh, you know, and we moved around a lot for job to job to job. But, you know, America is, is that land of opportunity. Uh, you know, we uh, build a life for ourselves much better than anything we could have had in the Soviet Union or the Ukraine. Uh, you know, very glad about that. But also, you know, it teaches you the value of, of hard work, um, the value of uh, good education and all those things that um, I think uh, America is known for around the world. So did your family end up in Portland or was that you solo? Uh, it's solo right now, although uh, my remaining family is going to be moving here in the near future. But uh, I, uh, you know, being a, a, a son of an immigrant family that moved around a lot, I ended up moving around a lot. So I've lived in uh, Houston. I've lived in New Orleans. I've lived in Washington, D.C. I've lived in uh, uh, Southern California. And uh, and then I came to Portland at first just on vacation, stayed downtown and uh, just fell in love with the city. You know, I remember uh, going out to Pioneer Square and uh, uh, seeing the March 4th marching band play out there on a Monday. You know, they used to have uh, music there every Monday. I didn't realize at the time, I just thought musicians played in Portland on the streets all the time, which they kind of do. But also um, just fell in love with the vibrancy of the city and um, relocated here because of that. And when was that? When did you come here and fall in love with the city? What year was that, do you think? Uh, so it was, uh, 2015, no, no, 2014. And it's, what have you seen in the city since that we have a lot of listeners, bizarrely, we're in the top 100 podcasts in Japan. So we have, we have a lot of listeners who aren't from here, don't know much about Portland or, or what's gone on with it in the past or, or its history. And I know we're just talking about very recent history, but what have you seen in the city of Portland from the time that you came and stayed and fell in love with it to here as you as you sit here today what what kinds of of things have you witnessed and and how has it changed well first of all uh shout out to uh everyone in japan and i believe our sister city of sapporo uh wonderful city and wonderful people you know we have uh, a really large uh, japanese population here in portland and and certainly as i understand it um, uh, Portland is uh, being advertised quite heavily in Japan because of similarities in the weather, similarities in the topography, including Mount Hood being close by, uh, similarities to uh, both uh, uh, Sapporo and, and Tokyo, um, and also uh, just nature. And so I remember seeing uh, a lot of Japanese tourist groups when I first moved here to Portland, uh, whether at the farmer's market or otherwise. So I know that there's a lot of people that are uh, very curious about the lifestyle here in Portland. Let me say it's still a great lifestyle. You know, almost every weekend I go out um, uh, and, and do hikes or, or backpack or otherwise I'm out in nature. I recently got a dog, so now uh, dog walking out on various um, nature paths and um, you know, great place to visit, great, great place to be, wonderful people, very helpful, wonderful food. Um, you know, and so I think that part of Portland is still there. The vibrancy, the, the music industry that makes Portland, I think, have more music venues than Austin, Texas, which uh, claims itself to be the music capital of the world. But we're really the independent musical capital of the world here. 
you know, a lot of lot of great bars and, and places where um, you can find entertainment in, in Portland. And so that is there. COVID impacted it. Some of the uh, vandalism that we're seeing around the city has certainly impacted it. Um, and then Portland has, you know, I think to your point, perhaps uh, has uh, gone through some difficult times. And uh, a lot of that can be uh, put at the foot of our government, um, you know, whether it's uh, uh, Charlie Hales and um, changing the policies around homelessness so that people could uh, camp on the sidewalk, which I think makes it very difficult for people to actually uh, walk and ambulate on, on city sidewalks or get to places that need to go, businesses, work or otherwise. And uh, I, I think there's been some um, choices that have not uh, uh, been in the best interest of Portland long term. So, you know, we're dealing with those choices right now. When you say choices that are not good for the long term, what, what kind of choices are you talking about? Well, you know, one of it is um, the, the choices we make uh, with respect to uh, uh, housing uh, people that are um, on the streets, you know, uh, uh, that, that, that choice was to allow people to camp wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted. And that's not something that we're seeing um, in other cities. And I don't think that that has helped those individuals uh, uh, find services. Um, I think some of the policies that we have around um, uh, 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 drugs has also not been helpful. So for instance, uh, Measure 110 was passed. And uh, Measure 110 had the best interest at heart, make sure we don't criminalize people who have drug addictions. I, I think everybody feels strongly about that. You know, just because you're addicted to drugs does not mean you should spend uh, years in jail and then have be stigmatized afterwards. Um, at the same time, you know, the, the model that we're supposed to be basing it on um, in, in, in Europe, in Portugal and places like that in Amsterdam, um, certainly did not condone drug use or drug dealing for that matter. Uh, there were consequences, not maybe criminal consequences, although it could get to that, but societal consequences. We, we do not have that societal consequence. Measure 110 and, and the uh, following Senate uh, a law that uh, um, sort of enacted it uh, said that people that uh, um, are uh, abusing drugs on the streets or otherwise uh, not um, living a, a, a lifestyle that's good for them um, would get a ticket. And that ticket, uh, I believe it's about $100, but it's not a criminal ticket. If you don't pay for it, nothing really happens. Uh, but you're supposed to call a number. And if you call that number, they try to link you with services. And they also dismiss that ticket. So all you have to do is not even show up to court. You just call this number that's provided you with a ticket. Well, um, you know, there's other counties in Oregon that, that are doing that. They're out there giving these tickets, trying to uh, get people into drug addiction services and maybe housing services, whatever their needs may be. There's an organization out there that is supposed to provide um, that linkage. Here in Portland, uh, neither the uh, police or the sheriff's office is, is really doing very much of that. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact facts, but uh, it was just a very small proportion, something like less than 1% of all the tickets uh, in, around um, Oregon actually are provided here in Portland. So not only are we uh, in many ways condoning this behavior, uh, which is not good for the people that are suffering the streets and overdosing in the streets, uh, but also not good for the neighborhoods in which they live, not good for the environment, um, uh, uh, but also we're not 
doing the thing that Measure 110 envisioned as to making sure that there's some sort of stick with that carrot. You know, it's once again, it's not a criminal stick, but it's like something to get people into the services. And we're just not doing that right now. And I know the police are saying that there's not enough people out there to actually do this. Um, I don't think the sheriff's office is participating in this program or to a lesser extent, perhaps we don't hear too much about that. But, you know, we we um, once again have policies that um, we're not looking at the um, unintended consequences until it's too late. And then we're not fixing those policies once we know that they're not working. You know, you're a disability law judge, and I think your path there is just incredible given your humble beginnings. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in, I mean, how did you even get to college? And then how did you get interested in law? Well, you know, that's, again, thanks to my parents. They instilled me, instilled in me from the very beginning about the need to uh, have a good education, to go to college and graduate, and if possible, go to graduate school. So uh, for me, uh, you know, I really enjoy reading. And so I was an English major in um, undergrad and then decided I wanted to go to law school. So I went to the University of Texas. And then when I graduated, I did several uh, judicial clerkships. I worked at an appellate court for the state level, um, and then I worked for a federal district court. And, and then I worked at a, um, a law firm for a little bit, and then I clerked um, at an international court for a year. And from that, um, I, I really uh, found a desire in myself to uh, further work in that job if possible as, as a judge. So I um, began working for the federal government and I worked as a lawyer for Medicare for a long time. So helping individuals that were uh, filing appeals uh, uh, relating to Medicare, getting the services that they needed, uh, and then um, was able to um, uh, apply for a job as an administrative law judge with the federal government and was very fortunate, honestly, as a lot of people apply for these jobs. So I was very fortunate in, in order to actually be selected for that job. And it, it's, it's an amazing opportunity. I talk to a lot of people um, in Portland and try to understand what their needs are. You know, the, um, um, the, uh, the requirements for getting uh, federal disability uh, may be a little different from what people expect that it's not just having a disability, it's whether you meet certain federal requirements for, for um, getting uh, disability benefits that are very different from people's um, you know, unique diagnoses that might be uh, disabling in various ways. But, um, you know, you try to do what you can and uh, you certainly uh, uh, try to help people as much as possible. You know, where did you do your undergraduate work? University of Texas as well in Austin. So I'm very familiar with uh, the music capital of the world. So I, I just think your pedigree is so impressive. For people who don't know, UT is just an incredible law school. It is a fabulous law school and clerkships a reward for doing well in law school. So I, I just think this city is incredibly lucky to have you. You are so community minded. You're talking about these hearings that you're going to, that you're testifying at on all sorts of legislative measures and policy-based solutions that you may or may not agree with. How did you end up getting so involved in the community? Well, you know, when I moved to Portland, uh, once again, I, I fell in love with the city and the people here. 
and I decided, uh, you know, my, my moving lifestyle was at an end and I was going to settle down here and stay. And so part of that was getting involved. I think it's a civic duty of people to actually participate in um, city government as much as possible, participate in their neighborhoods. And the first thing I did was, you know, certainly with my background, I reached out and and joined um, the Portland Commission on Disability. And uh, that's when I uh, first interacted with City Hall and I met Commissioner Fish, um, who has uh, passed away recently, but a wonderful individual. Uh, he helped me kind of understand um, how, you know, politics work to some extent, helped me with certain opportunities um, and uh, and learned a lot about the city bureaus through that process. You know, we worked on several projects with uh, PBOD uh, relating to disability needs and, uh, and, and housing was also uh, front and center. And it was also one of the venues where people could, people with disabilities could come uh, uh, to individuals, many of whom had lived experiences with disabilities and talk about their needs and have those needs um, heard at the city level. Now that commission has been disbanded. Um, so I, I think the people with disabilities in Portland are um, you know, too often overlooked. Uh, and that's certainly one aspect of that. There's not that form that there used to be in uh, getting their voices from um, you know street level all the way up to the halls of our city government. Uh, but I certainly learned a lot. And then, you know, since then I'm, I'm now on the uh, board for my neighborhood association, board for various organizations throughout Portland. But the beginning I went to city hall and the office of neighborhood involvement, which is now civic life. And I asked them like, you know, what, what's available? How can I participate? How can I help? And I, I think that there's a lot of people doing very similar things. Tell us a little bit about this ADA lawsuit, this Americans with Disability Act lawsuit, because it's my understanding, obviously you're passionate about disability rights and, and you derive a lot of meaning from your work. And I, I find that very impressive. It's also my understanding that you're involved in this lawsuit um, which, you know, our listeners, this is a long time coming. I mean, for years, a lot of people have been screaming about the lack of access to sidewalks in the city of Portland because of this tent camping. And it's very difficult and tricky to talk about this within the city because there are very loud, quote unquote, houseless advocates who who really just advocate for this libertarian idea that people should just camp wherever they want. But at some point, those liberties and rights come into conflict, right? Exactly, exactly. And our government should not be choosing, you know, winners and losers amongst this. It should be championing the cause of vulnerable populations um, and making sure that our laws here are followed. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a technically a part of the lawsuit. I, I have no stake in it whatsoever. I'm not being paid to do anything with respect to the lawsuit. If the lawsuit succeeds, I don't get any benefits from it. But the reason I um, sort of uh, uh, joined forces and have advocated for um, the, the eventual lawsuit um, really originated um, at the fall budget monitoring session. So for those of you that might not know, the city has um, various budget meetings throughout the year. There's the discussion about the general budget and then they can do tweaks during the fall and spring. Uh, well, during the fall budget monitoring process, um, uh, I, I was giving testimony and a friend of mine was giving testimony about some stuff 
And uh, there were a lot of people there at that point in time speaking about um, uh, uh, crime in Portland. They were uh, speaking out about needing more police because of how they were suffering, their families were suffering, uh, how their businesses were suffering. And uh, there was a lot of testimony around there. But what I found um, kind of uh, surprising and I I think very uh, important in the end run was there were three individuals uh, who uh, were experiencing visual impairments and they were saying that they they testified individually but that they were having a hard time actually walking to the Oregon Commission for the Blind which is an inner east side because there were uh, tents on the sidewalk uh, sometimes people were sleeping in the sidewalks and if those individuals bumped into them uh, that would cause all kinds of problems because of trash on the sidewalks and uh, hearing those individuals, I, I just expected someone on city council to actually um, acknowledge what they had said and show some compassion about these people's needs, uh, that they were having difficulties actually getting services because of, you know, um, certainly some dereliction on the part of our government with respect to um, maintaining um, public spaces. And, and no one did. It, it was silence. Um, you know, there were... Certainly some commissioners spoke when somebody else uh, mentioned anything about uh, uh, things that they felt strongly about when it came to spending money, especially about the police and or against the police, whichever sides people fell on. But no one acknowledged those three individuals. So um, I, I reached out and I, I, I contacted um, the Inner East Side Industrial Council, which is um, an organization that supposed to make sure that the sidewalks are clean and um, asked them whether um, they were seeing that. And they said, yes, they did. They heard other people making very similar um, uh, complaints, people with disabilities making similar complaints. And and so, you know, try to reach out to people to see if anybody would do something about it. And, uh, you know, weirdly enough, um, some organizations that um, or an, an organization that would uh, champion that, you know, for whatever reason did not. And then um, a friend of mine that was once again on that call as well was able to find a lawyer that would take that cause. And I think it's a, it's a very important cause. Um, you know, now, as I understand it, there's 10 plaintiffs that have signed up. And these are 10 individuals living throughout Portland, and they're all experiencing various uh, impediments to being able to go to school, to be able to go to their jobs, to be able to go to services, and just to be able to do something as simple as most of us find, uh, being able to just walk around their neighborhoods or ambulate around their neighborhoods in wheelchairs. Uh, it's it's really a, a heartbreaking stories. You know, one individual that uh, goes to the arts college in Old Town, uh, in a motorized wheelchair is not able to um, access uh, that school at times because the sidewalks are impassable. And then she also uh, spoke out about how at times there's just uh, trash and um, other things in the sidewalks that at the end of the day she has to uh, clean her wheelchair manually. And this is a person that... Um, has a very hard time doing that. So it takes uh, uh, two to three hours to, uh, for her herself to be able to clean her um, device. And, and she has to do that, like clean excrement off of her wheels, those sort of things. Uh, and and you, you, you gotta react to that. You can't, you can't just sit by and, and allow people to deal with that um, on their own. 
And so part of this uh, lawsuit that uh, John DiLorenzo is the lawyer on this is to actually get the city government to do what I think most people in Portland, the vast majority of Portland know needs to be done, which is certainly address the needs of uh, the homeless community, make sure that there's services, make sure that there's a bed and, and a hot shower and warm food for those individuals, but also make sure that Portlanders um, that are trying to just go to work or walk around um, their neighborhoods or um, otherwise are able to do that. And we can do both. Portland is a great city. It's a wealthy city. Uh, it's a city where there's a lot of people trying to help. We, we can do both, but for some reason, we've just not been able to. And so I, I think this lawsuit is about making sure that the city is once again accountable, accountable um, to everybody that lives here and accountable to make sure that everyone can live here peacefully and safely and comfortably. We've got a lot of lawyers in the city of Portland. Many people would argue too many. Why, why is it so difficult? Why was it so difficult to find a lawyer to take this on? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I thought it was going to be a pretty much a slam dunk thing. You know, there's people that are suffering. Let's find a way to help them or let's make sure that our city finds a way to help them. I, I, I think part of this is too many people don't want to rock the boat. There's there's a lot of entrenched interests here in Portland. Um, once again, you know, this is maybe a little cynical, but there's a lot of money going around. And it's that's wonderful if that money is being put to good use. But there's also a lot of people that just don't want to. Uh, change the way that the, those things are. And, and we need that change. I mean, Portland desperately needs that change right now. And it's a focus change. It's not change for the sake of change. It's just making sure that, um, you know, people in the halls of power know that there's a need to do things differently, that there's a need to actually be successful about how we spend our money. But un unfortunately, I think there's too many people that are scared of the pushback, that are scared of being docs, that are scared of having people vandalize their businesses or properties. I mean, we saw that certainly with Dan Ryan, who uh, took a vote on policing and his um, house was vandalized eight times. Um, you know, ten, Ted Wheeler had his condo set on fire. Uh, those sort of things turn people off from doing what they think is the right thing to do because they're scared for themselves, scared for their families, scared for their livelihoods. The bravest people in my mind are those 10 uh, people in wheelchairs who chose to actually partake in this lawsuit to speak out. It's a very difficult thing. You know, um, I'm out there talking to people and it's become second nature after a time, but God knows the first time I did it, I was scared. And, and these individuals who are already having difficult time in their lives, um, who are not out in the spotlight as part of their day-to-day -day life, uh, are out there saying, no, things need to change. We can't go on like this. And, and bless them for being out there. Bless them for their bravery. Um, Portlanders need people who are brave to do what's right. You know, these people are uniquely vulnerable. It, it, we talk about the homeless as, as being our most vulnerable population, and that may or may not be true, and we can debate about you know who gets the majority of the vulnerable pie, but I, I think it, we'd be, I think everyone would be remiss to not acknowledge that these disabled people, particularly people in wheelchairs who are just trying to get to work or, or school, like you said, or where they need to go, are, are not part of our most vulnerable populations. And when you talk about this person in Old Town, 
I mean, the, one of the first things that I think of that really concerns me is, isn't this person also uniquely vulnerable to crime? Exactly. You know, and crime, um, that's not part of the lawsuit. And, and you know, certainly we got to stick to what the law says and what the city can and yeah, cannot no, do. Yeah, no, of course. But lawsuit aside, I mean, when we're talking about issues in the city of Portland, it really concerns me that we've got these people... Uh, trying to ambulate about the city not only are not able to do that but who are I mean I think we forget about a lot of these eight a lot of these people that are not able-bodied but that are working in part of part of the com, the housed community if you will who are they're they're uniquely impacted by things that those of us who are totally able-bodied are complaining a lot about such as crime and homelessness in a way that a lot of us just don't think about. Yeah, and, and, and crime is is really something that is being felt by most Portlanders in a way that they've never felt before. You know, shootings are at a 30-year 30 30 year high. Murders are at an all-time high. Car thefts at an all-time high. It just goes on and on. And, you know, getting back to our early discussion we had about the campaign trail, you know, people discuss, um, you know, intimately some of the crimes that they've experienced, you know, uh, going to Old Town, going to Lentz, and hearing about, you know, people's houses being broken into, sometimes several times, uh, you know, people having their catalytic converters stolen um, right in front of their home, uh, people being assaulted, uh, and then feeling helpless, you know, when they call 911, feeling helpless when they see the same individuals that threatened them or even sometimes assaulted them being right back in the street the next day. And so that's that's a problem. Certainly it's a larger problem for people that are already uh, dealing with day-to-day challenges and other facets that, um, you know, could be exacerbated by that. And, and I think at the press conference for the lawsuit, some of those individuals did speak out about uh, uh, crime that they've experienced directly, even though that's not uh, uh, part of that lawsuit. But the um, there's no question that uh, there's a lot of people suffering in, in that aspect as well. You know, we you talked about this culture. I, I think for lack of a better term, I think there's a culture of political violence in this city. You talked about Dan Ryan's house being vandalized, Mayor Wheeler's condo being set on fire. There is this bizarrely accepted culture of violence that goes on when politicians do something that some of the loudest voices in the room don't like that I would generally characterize as as fringe left slash anarchist views. Um, I mean, they don't like, you know, they don't like anybody. They don't, they didn't like it when Joe Biden was elected for Pete's sake. They think he's some kind of colonizer. I, I, um, how do we, can we fix that? I mean, can we roll that back, Vadim? What do we do about that? I mean, we can really roll that back, you know, once once you kind of open the door to that uh, sort of activity, uh, it, it kind of snowballs as what we're seeing here. You know, lawlessness breeds more lawlessness. You know, there's a, a seemingly a weird disconnect here in Portland where, you know, words can be considered as violence, but violence can be considered as words. You know, it's not free speech to, um, you know, damage churches or damage homeless shelters, as we saw. You know, it's not free speech to break windows of uh, small businesses or, or even large businesses. But certainly there were a lot of small businesses that were damaged and had to close their doors. 
Um, it's not free speech to make people scared to, you know, uh, 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 to leave their home, which is certainly quite a few people have said that. Uh, and so part of it is, you know, as with the ADA or any other things, we need to enforce our laws. They're there for a reason. They're there to protect people. And when you stop protecting people, that's when you see uh, people getting hurt more and more. And so, you know, that we used to be proactive in the way we protected people. Now we're being very reactive and that needs to change. You know, we can't just send police like after a shooting to like investigate it. We need to make sure that uh, we have in place uh, uh, um, uh, uh, detriments to people being able to uh, do that in the first place. We send police um, after that there's, there's been a break in or after there's been uh, windows broken. Um, whereas before we used to have people just kind of walking the streets uh, from the police or otherwise making sure that um, individuals were safe. You know, I, in the recent article um, in the Willamette Weekly, it was announced that in Old Town, um, some of the patrols were going to start up again. And so we're seeing little shoots of doing things that we know has worked in the past. And certainly the history of that was uh, many decades ago, um, there was, you know, shootings in Old Town and and crime, especially late in the evenings um, after people were at the bars and uh, entertainment venues over there. And the city wanted to send in the uh, police over there just to kind of have a presence. Well, the uh, business in Old Town actually bristled upon that. They thought, they thought it would hurt their business, but it was done. And at the end of the day, uh, over the years, it became embraced by that community because the crime went down. People were still out there partying and enjoying that area, but they weren't um, afraid of being shot or, or assaulted. And then uh, as part of this, you know, we don't need the police anymore. Um, and as part of the, some of the budget blows I've been having, that ended. And we saw, you know, shootings in Old Town. We saw assaults in Old Town and, and talking to individuals in Old Town. There's, there's a lot going on that I think most people don't even realize on a daily basis that makes people very concerned about their safety. And so now we're bringing back something that we know has worked. Um, it's, I think, taking too long, but we need to restore peace and safety for people. It's, it's way past time. Well, and this, it's all concerning, but this political violence is concerning to me because we, we all talk a lot. I mean, I, I consider myself, a, I, I did consider myself a, a progressive. Um, I think I still do. I think I would be considered progressive throughout the rest of the country. Um, probably not in this city, but certainly throughout the rest of the country. And I, I just think um, there's something anti-democratic about it, I really do believe in preserving democracy, and I think Trump was a real threat to that, and and certainly January sixth, et cetera, and and not engaging in a peaceful transition of presidential power—the first time we've ever seen that in our history—and I think those of us who criticize things like that tend to overlook the fact that this kind of political violence that occurs in Portland, where we're just going to destroy the homes of people who do politicians who do things that we don't like or cast votes that we don't care for or do things that we ideologically disagree with that i i truly believe vadim that that is one of the reasons we have this power vacuum in the city of portland and there are all these people who don't want these jobs the last thing they the that a lot of people want is for their home to be burned down and certainly for them to be in it when it happens i mean this is more severe than property damage this is stuff like 
setting the Justice Center on fire where there are people working there, while there are people being jailed in there. Um, the idea that there was nobody in Mayor Wheeler's condo when that was set on fire is, is ridiculous. Um, obviously, there were tons of people there. And just firing commercial munitions into our federal courthouse, th this kind of stuff, um, I, I find it utterly anti-democratic. Do you think that any of that is part of the reason that we that we have such a lack of leadership in this city? I, I think it's a huge part. I, I've certainly talked to people that uh, wanted to run for office but are scared, literally scared for themselves, their families, their children, because of what they're seeing in, in, in Portland with respect to our political discourse. Um, you know, Jesse Burke uh, at, from the Society Hotel, who I think is a wonderful person, said something to me that really struck me. She was like, you're so brave to run for office. Now, I understand you're so foolish to run for office. You know, maybe it's not a good choice for your lifestyle. Um, you know, certainly uh, it's not a glorious time to be an office holder in, in Portland or Multnomah County. But brave, I was like, brave, that's a weird choice of words. But that was because people are afraid to run for office because they're seeing what's happening. They're seeing the violence. They're seeing, um, you know, uh, basically no uh, accounting for people doing very violent acts in the name of of political discourse and disagree with people all you want, advocate against people all you want, testify against people all you want, but you can't damage uh, people and threaten to hurt people and end up causing circumstances that would cost lives just because you feel philosophically, politically different from another individual. But that seems to be the area where over the last year we've gotten to. Don't you think we got to pass some bill in Congress about this? I mean, the U.S. Congress was able to put something together after there was that threat to Justice Kavanaugh. I just think we've got to pass something in Congress in the state of Oregon that prevents this altogether. I mean, wouldn't that kind of help crush this idea that, um, you know, if somebody if if a politician does something you don't like, you just you can just engage in, in violence against them? How about we just enforce the laws that we have, right. you know, um, it's, it was very interesting during the riots um, that happened. A lot of the people that were actually causing um, the, the serious destruction and the fires came here from outside of Portland. There was an individual that traveled all the way from Chicago and then ended up uh, throwing a Molotov cocktail, I believe, at a police officer. There was someone, someone else with a hatchet. Um, that that uh, was trying to strike a police officer that was also outside of town. And it's that lawlessness that uh, brings more lawlessness. And if we just enforce the laws, particularly about, you know, not killing people, I think that's a good law to, you know, um, embrace. <laughs> it's a if great law. Try to burn a condo down. There should be some ramifications to that. If you try to burn down the justice center, there should be some ramifications to that. Um, you know, I was, um, I like to see things with my own eyes. So I would actually go during the evening protests. I'd be there during the daily peaceful protests. I would also stay for the evening protests. And it was amazing to watch and uh, hard to understand the glee some people had in destroying things. I, you know, I watched one individual climb up a pole and tear down the crosswalk sign, the walk, don't walk sign, and set it on fire. Now, I don't know what kind of statement that makes about social justice or Black Lives Matter or policing when basically uh, somebody could be run over the next day because there's not a crosswalk sign. I watched people uh, put a trash uh, dumpster next to the 
Apple store, which people who might not know the Apple store right now, it looks like a prison because there's a big fence around it, but it's also right next to a building that, you know, uh, I believe it's just office space, but nonetheless, it's not just the Apple store. And then set fire to that dumpster and then put other flammable things on that dumpster and dancing while uh, the building, the door became charred. Luckily, the building didn't catch on fire, but, you know, certainly there was no want of trying. And and to myself, I'm like, is this, is this a protest or is this something else? Uh, and so we have laws against setting buildings on fire. We have laws against assaulting people. We have laws against threatening to assault people. Those worked for, you know, hundreds of years. And, and, and they're there because, you know, you want to stand up for the victims, not stand up for the perpetrators that are causing harm to other people. And it's, it's you know... Uh, You can't be in a society where people feel threatened and people feel like if they're harmed, there's nothing that can be done. You know, I like Jessie a lot, too, and I really respect her. She's we're going to have a episode with her on. And I think she's right. I think you are really brave for running. What would you say to people who are interested in getting engaged in their communities and speaking out in the way that you have done so well? I mean, I I feel like you straddle this culture of compassion with a need for change in this incredible way. And and what would you say to people who are afraid to to speak out and are afraid to get involved in their communities? You know, I, I, I say do it. You'll find so many people that will help you along that path. You know, running for office was amazing because people would come to you and they're saying what they do out there, whether it's solve cleanups or, you know, uh, uh, helping uh, homeless people uh, uh, find services or all these small things that they're doing. And they're just looking for a plan and they want to join you in, in advocating for something that's good and right. Uh, and so you will find a lot of people to help you. And you will find um, very few people uh, that uh, uh, oppose you for the sake of opposing. Most Portlanders know that we need to improve things. And if you are a voice for that, um, you will find a lot of friendship. And don't be scared about the headlines. Don't be scared about, um, you know, the unknown. People will stand with you. And I think that's a very important thing to know is that most people in Portland um, are, are here for the improvement for our city, not to... Um, you know, partake in the destruction of our city and those people will, will join you and, and hold hands with you and help you in any way you can. Um, I, I certainly found that opportunity to be a, an amazing opportunity. So obviously you're incredibly civic minded and you believe it's a duty to participate in your community, but how did you end up running for city council? I'm dying to know what your, was there a tipping point or was it just a buildup of momentum? You know, so uh, part of this was meeting people in the various organizations that I, I joined. So um, I, uh, I'm a board member and uh, past president of the Public Safety Action Coalition. And that's an organization with people who live in, you know, mostly central Portland, but it really it's all over the place. Um, uh, people who have uh, businesses in, in central Portland, people that are on neighborhood associations, people that, you know, uh, by themselves have difficulty um, perhaps uh, getting things done or having their voice heard uh, in City Hall, who joined together to you know build their voices and elevate their voices, uh, and then also neighborhood association. I live in uh, Goose Hollow, so the Goose Hollow Neighborhood Association, the Goose Hollow Foothills League, 
you uh, meet individuals and other organizations as well. And I started having individuals come to me and say, you should run for office. I never wanted to run for office. I have an amazing job, love the job. And, uh, but also very concerned about our city and have been working for a long time to have those concerns heard by people that might be able to address those concerns. And, and you know, especially in this last election, it didn't seem like uh, Joanne Hardesty had any viable candidates running against her. And, you know, having worked on police oversight, which I think is very important. You know, I, I served on both the Portland Committee on Community Engaged Policing as well as the uh, Citizen Review Committee, which hears complaints against the police bureau. Uh, and then also on their budget team, um, on their uh, uh, budget committee. I, I, I knew that I had the background and the ability to um, serve in office and also, um, you know, kind of uh, address Joanne where she says her strengths are, which is policing and, and those type of things. So uh, I, you know, after speaking to people and people who had actually been active in campaigns before, I decided to throw my hat in the ring uh, because I felt it was time for a change in Portland. We received a lot of questions about your time on the Police Citizen Review Committee because it's my understanding that there were two women on that community who essentially accused you of racism, which as you sit here across from me today as a first generation Ukrainian immigrant, I mean, I, yeah, phenotypically you appear white, but I, the idea that you're some kind of racist, I mean, how, how did that, aren't you Jewish too? Yes. How did that feel? I mean, inevitably you were gonna be called a racist in Portland because you're running for office and you're, you're criticizing existing structures and that's what the, the narrative to cancel people who are criticizing existing structures when people don't like that is to call them a racist. I mean, did you, did you expect to be called a racist at some point? You know, it's unfortunate, but we did have that conversation. You know, where would that come from? How would that come from? You know, uh, I, my, my roots in the, in the Portland community are pretty deep. You know, for instance, on the Portland Committee on Community Engaged Policing, I actually um, uh, uh, advanced a... Um, recommendation to the mayor about having a truth and reconciliation commission where some of historic um, uh, uh, racist um, uh, uh, thoughts and action on behalf of the police would be addressed so that Portland could heal. And then we invited um, several black leaders to serve on that committee in order to um, uh, in order to make sure that that does happen. And in fact, uh, I passed on the baton to uh, a black woman who uh, once again uh, had the courage to, to lead. And, um, you know, I think those things are important. I think we need to understand that certainly there is racism uh, every in, in all walks of life and we need to address that. But also we can't um, you know, uh, cry wolf every time you disagree with someone. And so there was an email I sent that disagreed on the timing of um, a, a particular meeting and, and whether we should do it sooner or quicker is basically the gist of it. And then all of a sudden at a meeting that I'm not even at, uh, there was allegations of uh, white supremacy and things like that. So, you know, I, I don't know whether it's politically motivated, you know, it seemed to, you know, uh, create a narrative that uh, when I was running for office is not a beneficial narrative, but it was so divorced from reality that, you know, I, I had to hold a press conference and had to ask for an investigation. 
Um, that investigation has recently come back. It showed that I was clear of any uh, racist motivation or otherwise, you know, but the damage had been done, of course. I mean, you know, going out there and saying that because it was a public hearing, there were reporters there. And of course, I was not there. So, um, you know, that's that's not the kind of dialogue that we should be having in Portland. I think it does a disservice to, you know, the racism that is out there when any disagreement can be elevated with such strong language. Yeah, I mean, if, if Vadim Mazursky is a white supremacist, what do we call David Duke? I, I just, I think these terms, the, the problem with you throwing these terms around to gain some kind of foothold, or my understanding is these women who accuse you of white supremacy were Joanne supporters, and my guess is it, it was, I mean, my armchair psychology, and we can debate about whether or not this this was or were not, was not their motive, but my guess is it was, it was to put you... Uh, behind Joanne and people just kind of dismiss you outright. I, I think, um, you know, when you dilute, dilute terms in that way, like white supremacist, it really, it really throws a wrench in trying to combat actual racism and actual white supremacy. And when we, when we, when these terms lose all meaning, I don't know how we call out actual racists and have that be meaningful. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, we need to have um, trust in people making allegations. And, you know, I mean, that's all I can say about that. You know, I, I do believe that it was unfair characterization. I can't speak as to the motives behind it, um, but we can't continue having um, these kind of discussions in the midst of um, what, uh, you know, the reality is that there's very important discussions to be had that are real discussions and not fake discussions. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that a lot of people are afraid to run for office is they just, they're good Portland progressives and they, they're terrified of being called racist or white supremacist. And that, I'm sure that stung when you first, the first time you heard it, it probably wasn't from these women. It was probably from, my guess is it was probably earlier, um, just because you phenotypically appear white and, and you know, people can just cast a stone in that way if they disagree with you ideologically. But what would you say to somebody who says, you know, I'm just terrified of being called a racist and I know that I will be called that if I say something that goes against the the ideological grain? Uh, to them, I say, you know who you are. You know, you can't live your life of fear. And I think people count on that fear for political, monetary, personal gain. And, uh, you know, we have to stand up for it, especially if you want to be a leader in the community, if you want to have a voice. Uh, you know, it's not all uh, fun and games. Some of it is um, really difficult things that you have to go through. Um, but you also have a lot of people around you who know who you are, who will speak out for you. Um, and I, I appreciate all those individuals um, that came out and said, I know Vadim and this is not anything relating to reality and everybody out there will have individuals like that as well um, you know we can't have shortcuts to public discourse you can't just say certain words and cut off people's speech um, we need to be able to talk about the issues and we have a lot of issues here important to talk about uh, without fear of sound bites and fear of what people say online or otherwise. Um, so let's let's talk. Let's talk about the issues rather than about uh, people's characters. So one of the commissions that you also served on was the charter 
committee, the, the charter commission, and that there's going to be a measure on the ballot in November to change Portland's city charter. And it's my understanding that you resigned from that committee. Is that right? Yes. It's, let's talk about that. Why did you resign, Vadim? So uh, I joined the committee because I firmly believe that Portland needs to change the commission form of government. Having certainly worked um, within the political system here, I know that there's a lot of failings, you know, a, a multitude that people know about every time the mayor appoints a new uh, commissioner in charge, uh, you know, the direction of uh, this multi-million, multi-hundred million dollar bureau can change. Uh, it, it's just, it isn't good for the long term of Portland. So I joined in order to be part of that change and I was lucky enough to work with a lot of individuals that I believe have the best interests of Portland at heart. I was the first uh, co-chair of that commission. And then, you know, we kept getting um, really kind of uh, questionable uh, uh, testimony at our uh, commission meetings. So most people that came to our uh, commission wanted that change in commission form of government. Uh, and, and we had a lot of conversations about what that would look like. At first, there was like most people wanted to have a council manager form of government, council city manager with no mayor, it'd be council uh, would elect somebody. Um, or, a, uh, and then it, it changed to a strong mayor. And then that, whereas the mayor would hire and fire the city manager, then city council could also fire the city manager, then the mayor wouldn't vote. And anyways, we went through a lot of permutations on that. The one thing we didn't uh, change at all from pretty much the very beginning, once it was decided based on polling that uh, the, the magic number that Portners could deal with was 12 city council people, any more than that, people would have a negative reaction. There were some people I wanted 30 some odd city council people. Uh, and, and then it was like, okay, four districts, three members each using a very unique form of voting called single transferable vote or proportional ranked choice voting. That combination of multi-member districts um, with single transferable vote is not being used anywhere in the United States. So, so we're moving from a system that uh, is no longer being used, the commission form of government, to a system that is not being used at all. And we had a lot of people come to testify, people just off the streets, you know, uh, from their neighborhoods, from wherever, however they might have heard of the commission. And they had qualms with 12 commissioners. Some people felt that would be too many. Uh, they had qualms about the price tag, you know, 43.8 million, not including the um, matching funds for running for office that the city pays. Is that the price tag for the current ballot measure? Yeah, well, we, we're not even sure exactly how much because there's no details there, but that's the estimate right now the, to enact um, the the new voting system as well as the possible salaries. And we don't know even what the salaries will be at this point nor how many people will be employed. But over the first three years, $43.8 And again, that doesn't take into account the matching contributions that the city pays for people running for office. So it's actually millions more. Um, but anyway, so that's, and people had problems and then they were like, why are, why are we having these four districts with three people each? You know, I, uh, I vote for four people right now in city hall and, uh, four city commissioners and I don't find that there's accountability. And the solution to that is now I get to vote for three. How is that accountability? You know, people wanted to have one represented in their district. Uh, people wanted to have smaller districts so their neighborhoods would be more contiguous or the needs of their neighbors would be more contiguous. People didn't want this very experimental 
uh, uh, voting. Uh, you know, if you have single member districts, you can have the same ranked choice voting as New York City or 40 other cities have. Instead, we have this proposal where it's a very experimental voting style. But those people were not heard. Those people did not sway the opinion of the majority of the people in the Charter Commission. Instead, we got all this polling from national advocacy groups and then advocacy groups here in Portland who wanted to have ranked choice voting. The polling was mind-boggling. Um, one poll said that 75% of Portlanders wanted to have this very unique voting system. Uh, something like uh, 20% did not and, and less than 5% didn't have an opinion. It's staggering. When I talk to people, they don't even understand what they're voting for right now. I don't know how they got a poll that said 75% of people actually wanted this when, um, you know, there's there's really nothing analogous to it in the United States. And I think that polling swayed a lot of people, especially in the commission, thinking that they were doing what people in Portland wanted to do. It was sort of like, don't believe your lying eyes. The people that come to you um, and say, we don't want this. Well, it doesn't matter because we have this nice poll that says that you do. Well, in the end, we got another poll that uh, was an independent poll, and this poll was commissioned by um, the uh, Coalition for Communities of Color, commissioned by North Star, which is one of these advocacy groups here in Portland. They're raising hundreds of thousands of dollars to uh, uh, pass this measure, most of it from outside the city and outside the state, um, and also from the Portland Business Alliance. Now, that poll was commissioned early on, but in the... um, the Charter Commission didn't see this poll. Uh, City Council was provided versions of this poll, but it was redacted heavily. And this poll was really interesting because it's the only independent poll we saw that was not paid for by people who are advocating for these changes. And this poll showed that 72% of Portlanders wanted to have separate measures so they could vote on the commission form of government, so they could vote on district elections, so they can vote on ranked choice voting. That's democracy, right? 72% of the people wanted that. They didn't get that. Now it's one big package. You have to vote for everything or nothing at all. 17% of those polled wanted more accountability, which again, if you're electing one person and that's accountability, if they're doing a good job, keep in office. If they're doing a bad job, vote them out. Electing three people doesn't really help with that accountability any more than currently. They, they wanted to, a, a large chunk of them altogether, something like 25% wanted a change in our commission for our government to a city manager or something otherwise. Uh, there were various questions, but put together, that was a pretty substantial margin. Only 1% thought that ranked choice voting was uh, the most important thing for them, 1%. And here it's upside down. We got this very unique, very um, experimental ranked choice voting proposition. And then um, changing this commission form of government to, um, you know, what basically is a city manager with uh, 13 supervisors because all of them can hire or fire the city manager. And the mayor actually has less authority than the mayor currently has. You know, we just saw Alaska, a clearly red state, use their new ranked choice voting system to elect a Democrat to their one congressional seat. Do you think the reverse of that could happen here? Like, in other words, could is it possible that two popular candidates split the vote with less than 50% and then somebody that nobody actually wants, who doesn't have any support, gets in because people were just not attentive to things like second, third, and fourth choices and lost interest in their ballot after a certain point? Exactly. I mean, that's, that's part of the conversation I'm having is, this 
very experimental voting uh, um, measure lowers the threshold to elect somebody to 25% plus one vote. So instead of getting, you know, 50% where that individual has to get the majority of people backing him or her in order to get elected, under this current proposal, it's only 25%. Now, the people that are proponents of this are selling the stars in the moon. They're saying, you know, this will solve everything. No more nimbyism, no more disagreements. People will work together. It'll uh, proportionally reflect um, every constituency in Portland. Um, but when you look at historically what's happened in the United States, it's actually people, cities and uh, states have been moving away from multi-member districts and the few places that have um, this very unique style of voting, not with multi-member districts, because no one has that, but at least at large, haven't shown the promises that they have. Instead, we see what's happened in Alaska, which, you know, very Republican state. Um, we're all celebrating that they've uh, elected a Democrat. You know, that's that's great. Sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the reason that Democrat was elected was because 10 um, percent of the people that filled out the, the ballot didn't actually do the ranked choice voting thing. They voted for one person. And um, and the Democrat won by a very slim margin because, in theory, those individuals either didn't like ranked choice voting or for whatever reason didn't actually vote for the other Republican or whatever they would have voted for. And we can have that exact same thing happen in Portland when you have 25 percent of the vote needed to elect somebody. Um, yeah, you could elect people that you want to elect and put into office. You know, people have the best interest of Portland at heart and have a similar philosophy to you. But also you can elect people that have the polar opposite. And, um, you know, will those people represent their districts or will they just represent the 25 percent of the people that will keep them in office? And you better believe that they'll represent the 25 percent of the people that will keep them in office and not the 75 percent of the rest of the district um, that might have differing views. Um, it really does create uh, factionalism and it, it has a lot of possible disincentives. You know, so if you're happy that um, a Democrat got elected in Alaska, make sure you're going to be happy if a Republican gets elected here in, in Portland. Nothing against either party to each his own. But, you know, let's let's be real about what the possible consequences are. Do you have any understanding about why ranked choice voting is being pushed by this commission committee as being superior to just voting for a single candidate of choice? I you mean, know, is there any data to suggest that voters are going to get educated in a way that would allow the merits of any one candidate in that pool to make that worthwhile? Uh, so there's two different questions there. I'll take the second one yeah, first. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. The, the you know, the, the education piece is key. So in New York City, they had ranked choice voting recently. And, uh, you know, Mayor Eric Adams won. Um, there was actually people started building coalitions and things against them to try to take away their vote and game the system, which you can with ranked choice voting game the system. Um, but interestingly enough, the uh, NAACP came out against ranked choice voting because they thought it would disenfranchise people uh, if there was not enough education about it, if people were not um, making all the choices they can. And it's going to be particularly difficult here in Portland because we always have a lot of people running for office. You know, it's always like a dozen, 20 people running for each spot. You'll see more people in districts. That we, that's what we saw in Seattle. More people ended up running. You have to raise more money as well when there's more people to run. But um, you'll have probably in your district 30 people running for office for three spots. 
uh, good luck ranking 30 people without a primary to kind of winnow down what people's um, platforms are. So uh, if you if you can even keep 30 people in your mind to know how you would rank them uh, is is a little bit mind boggling. But um, you know that could be the case. And if people don't fill out all 30, then their vote doesn't count as much as the person who does fill out all 30. The person who fills out only one, their vote will not count as much as the person who fills out two or three or ranks two or three. So be prepared for a ballot where you'll have, you know, 900 circles to fill in and rank those people from one to 30 and be prepared to do your homework because I think that's what's going to be necessary to elect good people in office. And the downside is that people don't, if there's not enough information out there, if they don't, if they can't make um, a, a uh, knowledgeable vote, um, you're going to get people in office that will not represent you very well. And then the first part of your question about how we got here, as I understand it, at least you know, there's there's pros and cons. There's certainly going to be people and organizations are going to benefit from this new voting style, and people and organizations that won't. Um, certainly, any organization that can help build coalitions um, is going to uh, uh, is going to benefit greatly from this because you're, you're going to have to run, um, you know, with with other individuals, like-minded individuals, in order to get elected. I think it's going to help um, incumbents. Um, so, you know, with a lower threshold of 25% to get elected. Every incumbent that's ever lost an election in Portland would still be on city council with this vote. So whatever you think of Chloe Daly or Novick or any of these other ones, incumbents because of neighbor condition always get 30 to 40 percent of the vote. And with the threshold only going to be 25 percent, um, you know, they're going to have lifetime tenure. So I, I applaud whatever politicians have spoken out already and said that they're against it because in some ways. Um, and it undercuts their future uh, political aspirations, perhaps, because this really is an unemployment insurance policy for incumbents in that they will always remain in office. If the mayor doesn't have a voice, I mean, I mean, I guess my first question is, does the under the ballot measure that is going to be up in November, does the mayor have a voice in terms of a vote? No, the mayor would. Oh, uh, oh, under this current ballot measure, the mayor yes. would only have a voice in the case of a tiebreaker. So day-to-day votes, the mayor would not be consulted. Okay, so if the mayor, if this passes and the mayor doesn't have a voice in terms of a vote, doesn't this hurt rather than help this current problem that I feel like we're all screaming about of a weak primary leader? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, Ted Wheeler has been out there quite a few times saying I get blamed for everything, but I only have the same authority as five other uh, as the four other city commissioners. And and for the most part, that's true. Um, under this new proposal, the mayor would even have much less authority. And, and I, I think that there was certainly a call for the mayor to have that responsibility. But also when you look at district elections, so right now the proposal is four districts each the size of Salem or Eugene and have three representatives each. There's no um, at-large perspective on the needs of the city. And so we have the possibility of, of uh, nimbyism, tribalism, whatever you want to call it, and the districts voting based on whatever needs they have, but no one voting based on the, you know what the Portland holistically needs as a city. So out of the 40 largest cities in the United States, 75% of them provided a veto power for the mayor. So at least there's like an at-large um, interest in, in the day-to-day legislation of the city. And so Seattle has it, San Francisco has that, and, and we don't. Uh, and so I think that 
makes it more difficult for the mayor to have any input on um, how the city is run. Uh, and then coupled with that, you know, there, there's a fairly unique proposal. I've only found one other city that has that, where um, the mayor proposes who the city manager would be, and city council approves that, and that's fine. The mayor can fire the city manager, which gives the mayor at least some authority and that the city manager is responsible to uh, uh, an elected official. But in our proposal, city council with a supermajority, two thirds can also fire the city manager. So you have, you know, diverging interests. Perhaps the city manager would have to not only keep the mayor happy, but also 12 city council people because any one of them could influence that person's job. You know, my understanding is Mayor Wheeler is wildly unpopular. I I know very few people who think he's doing some kind of a bang up job. And, you know, it's everybody from the far left. You see graffiti everywhere that says hang Wheeler. And I don't in any way condone that. But I find it interesting that these fringe left activists hate him. And, of course, most centrist Portlanders can't stand him. Most Portlanders I know can't stand him. I, I think one of the reasons that Sarah E. Anarone, who declared herself I am Antifa, was got so close to defeating him in the mayoral election is because he's just so wildly unpopular. And one of my concerns, Vadim, is that people are going to look at this ballot measure for charter reform and be very tempted to vote for it because they're very unhappy with the current system of government. I, I don't know a single person who thinks this current system of government in the city of Portland is working in any manner. It, and there's no modicum of success that, that I can see with this current form of government. How do we convince people to get past their temptation to vote for charter reform in November? Well, you know, that's that's my job and that's the job of uh, Mingus Maps and his Ulysses pack as well. And by voting no in November, it doesn't close the door on charter reform. It actually allows us to build a better house. So if people um, don't have to wait a year or two years or 10 years, as the proponents are saying, to actually get the change that they need to get rational change change that's based on what we know works in other cities because we can actually look at other cities and know that that political system is viable and we can do that here as well and make it work. Uh, The proponents are certainly trying to do scare tactics, which is, you know, you have to vote for this or it's going to be a lifetime of, uh, you know, dysfunctional government. Um, They're using the fact that, you know, Ted Wheeler is very unpopular and other city commissioners are very unpopular to sell this package and and cynically making it one package rather than, you know, different options so that people have to vote for both things they like, such as changing the commission for own government with things that they might not like, like having a huge districts where, you know, you don't even know where your neighborhood falls in right now in those districts. Um, And but the reality of the situation is uh, by October 3rd, um, Mings Maps and the Ulysses Pack will have a proposal that's going to be based on both the testimony provided by individuals at the Charter Commission, on focus groups, on listening sessions, and I, I, I have a sense that that's going to be uh, a very pragmatic and practical approach based on uh, systems that work in other cities. 
And so we can have actual practical solutions to our former government uh, rather than experimenting at a time during which we already have a lot of problems. So that would be on the ballot in May 2023. There's certainly three or four people on city council uh, that already noted their uh, displeasure about the current uh, chart proposals, but are still willing to vote on something that um, would better Portland and change the commission form of government. And if not, my organization is raising the money to have a, a public initiative uh, to get the signatures to put that on the ballot. So we'll have the money if city council does not act to to put that in place. So right now, even if this measure passes, it's not until 2024 during which it's enacted. Um, we'll have a proposal in 2023 that'll take effect by 2024. And, and that's going to be a better proposal. So, so you just said there, there are people currently on city council who you don't think support this charter ballot measure. Does that include Hardesty and Rubio? Because I think most of us would assume that Hardesty and Rubio would be for charter reform ballot measure. So we've had three people already on our city council speak out against it. You know, obviously Mingus Maps, Dan Ryan, Ted Wheeler. Um, they, they have found pretty serious flaws in the proposal. And we have two other people on our city council, as you mentioned, Joanne Hardesty and Carmen Rubio, that are apparently agnostic. So they're willing to let the voters, they have no opinion on this, you know, whatever the voters decide. What's interesting, though, is, you know, having served in the Charter Commission, one of the first things we did was we reached out to our elected officials, um, all five people on city council, including the mayor, as well as the auditor, and asked them, what what do you think works? What do you think doesn't work? Do we need to change it? And um, all but one said that we needed to change our commission form of government, that, you know, the mayor certainly didn't want to be the police chief. I mean, the police commissioner, um, uh, but also there's various problems. You know, they talked about all the difficulties they had running these bureaus and there's not enough time in the day. The one person that thought things were fine and dandy um, was Joanne uh, Hardesty. And that's, I believe, our April one of our April meetings, those meetings are online. You can watch it yourself. It was her and Mingus Maps appear, appeared together. And according to her, you know, she um, was able to issue contracts for PBOT and she was the representative of the people and that was the best way of doing things. And, and so um, that's, that was a, a reason to keep our commission form of government. Uh, so I think the very fact that we have two individuals that are not saying they're going to vote yes on this um, speaks volumes about what their real feelings are about this measure. You know, you said the one of the arguments that people in favor of charter reform are advancing are that, hey, look, our city, our current city commissioners are unpopular, but <laughs> I mean, they're going to expand council on, on in this ballot measure. Isn't that right? I mean, is that is that a great argument to advance this this commission charter change ballot measure? I, I just fail to see the benefit of expanding the council. And I wonder how will the need to get consensus among such a big group, if we make the council larger, how does that enhance leadership instead of mire us in administration and prevent us from being able to respond to these emergency problems that we seem to have constantly. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an excellent point. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's questionable whether 
the way to solve um, an ineffective government is by making it bigger and more expensive. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's, there's no outline right now as to how these individuals, three from each district, will share power. There's no outline as to what their responsibilities will be, what their constituent outreach will be. You know, uh, is someone going to be elected and they're like, okay, well, I'll take on all the calls about trash. You take on all the calls about homelessness, whatever that might look like. You know, how do people divide that authority right now? You know, at least the mayor signs the bureaus. And so you kind of understand who's doing what. But in these large districts uh, and again, you don't know where your neighborhood is. You know, central east side might be with the west. The west by itself is not big enough to form a district by itself. So these, there's these huge districts where your neighborhood might be with other neighborhoods that don't have similar needs. But you'll elect three people, and two years from now, um, in 2024 at least, they'll uh, come into office, 12 people on city council, one new mayor, um, one new city manager, and they're all supposed to figure out how to manage a city together with no blueprint in place. So anybody on city council will tell you it takes about a year to learn the job right now, even though it's kind of established and the framework is out there. How long will it take these people to learn what they're doing? How long will it take them to be responsive to their community members? If someone's doing a good job, how will people know that? If someone's doing a bad job, how will people know that? You better believe there's going to be a lot of finger pointing. And then how do people work together? You know, if you're the district representing, um, you know, East Moreland and Alberta, how do you, you know, uh, uh, have a conversation about the long-term financial needs of the district of the three people that are from downtown and uh, southwest and northwest. You know, the, the good thing about having smaller districts is at least you have contiguous areas where neighborhoods are more similar and, and you have one person. And, and if they're working with other individuals and they're doing a good job and you're getting the park services, you're getting the trash, the homelessness, they're able to get what you need, keep that person in office. If they're not doing a good job for you, vote them out. And that person knows that their um, job is on the line if they're not able to work with the other city council people. When you have three people from one council, well, you know, if your district doesn't do a good job, well, you know, Jane's not doing a good job. Bob's not doing, I'm doing a great job. You know, you'll see a lot of finger pointing um, and a lot of kind of what we're seeing right now. Well, yeah, I have uh, the Parks Bureau, but I don't, I don't have PBOT, so tough luck. Um, you know, if we're electing four people to city council, well, three people to city council, there's still gonna be that same finger pointing. We talked about how the ballot measure as it currently stands is going to create an even weaker mayor. And one of my biggest concerns, Vadim, is, you know, we already have this weak mayor and, and Wheeler is so wildly unpopular. And I, boy, I mean, I just don't think a lot of people want that job in part because it is so weak. I think that's how we got Sarah Yanaron as his primary challenger for Pete's sake, who would have been our first Antifa mayor in the country. And I just, I mean, I don't know who who do we think will run for the position of mayor if this charter reform is enacted? Yeah, I, I'd love to see that uh, job posting for the mayor. Um, yeah, please run for mayor. <laughs> you'll have no authority. Um, you know, you'll have supervision over somebody, but so will a lot of other people. You, you can go to conferences around the, the state and the country every once in a while and make speeches, but your house may be burned down. Um, you know, and, and we don't know what your salary is. There's going to be a, a, a committee that's going to be established at a later point in time to figure that part out. Um, yeah, good luck getting a candidate that is, is good for the job. 
Do you know of any major city in the U.S. that uses the system that's being proposed that will be on the ballot in November? No, there's none. Is there any other city our size in the United States with proven success using components of that system that will be on the ballot? So components is a little closer because, um, so for instance, uh, we have a proposal for multi-member districts. Uh, Baltimore, Maryland, up until 2002, had multi-member districts and um, on their commission actually recommended single-member districts and that passed by a vote of uh, 66%. Uh, or two to one um, for single member districts. So for the various reasons we discussed here, accountability, uh, very difficult for uh, um, uh, getting entrenched candidates out of office, very difficult getting individuals with good ideas that were not established into office and it cost a lot of money. Um, And we actually had uh, an individual, uh, Terry Harris, who was on the commission in 2002 in Baltimore, who moved to Portland a couple of years ago, and he attended every one of our uh, commission meetings here and advocated against the proposal because he's like, I've lived it, I've seen it, don't do that in Portland here. But of course, his voice was not heard. So we're seeing people moving away from the multi-member districts, you know, in 1960. Two, there were 41 states, I believe, that had multi-member districts in their legislatures and otherwise. Now there's only 10. Um, in any case, but with respect to the voting, this single transferable vote, um, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts uh, uh, has that. So it's still at large. And, you know, in one fell swoop, they elect um, all their people to city council. They elect their school board members, um, not district-based, but at large. And uh, in the Oregonian article uh, this weekend, um, uh, Shane Dixon Kavanaugh wrote an article about it, uh, both both Baltimore and um, Cambridge, and that's the uh, September 18th article from, uh, in case anybody wants to look that up. Uh, And it showed that the promises being made here are not really promises that are being felt elsewhere. So I've, I've talked a little bit about Baltimore, but for Cambridge, uh, there were a, a few quotes from individual. An individual actually got elected under this um, system. Um, no, I'm sorry, that was Baltimore. So, but anyways, an individual that had worked in that system for a long time and said, you know, people, uh, I'm gonna paraphrase a little bit, but people promise proportionality, but what you really get is just people still voting on, you know, what, what a person's philosophy is, where they live, um, you know, all these other things is basically like a, a menu of items that people vote for and not really the promise that is being sold here, which is, you know, you get this and it'll be instant proportionality of every interest group, every demographic. Uh, they're not seeing that in Cambridge. And um, interestingly enough, in 2020, I believe it was 2020, very recently, Massachusetts had ranked choice voting on their ballot measure for the state they voted it down by 10 percentage points. So, you know, we're pointing to Cambridge as something that works. Massachusetts doesn't think that that's something that works. So, um, you know, otherwise, uh, this pairing of multi-member districts with a single transferable vote is, is certainly untried. So who knows what's gonna happen with that. So when you resigned from the commission, the charter commission, you formed a political action committee of your own, right? Yes, it's called the Partnership for Common Sense Government. And so you and I finally met. It's funny that we hadn't met before, but I was thrilled to meet you. You and I finally met earlier this week at a party at a fundraiser for your political action committee. And it was 
fabulous. It was very well attended. Um, how did you, I mean, you've got some incredible names behind you helping you and helping this political action committee educate the public about why we should vote no on charter reform. How did you gain all of these wonderful voices from across, really across the, I mean, the Portland political spectrum is, is tiny, but there really is, I think people from, not from Portland need to understand, there really is a very big divide between center left people and far left people. And at this party, everybody, I, I looked around, everybody was really coming together on this. How did you get such a broad coalition of voices to join you in this pack? So uh, I think the name of the pack kind of answers that question. You know, it's, it's first of all, partnership. Um, we're, we're not looking to exclude people. We're not looking to be divisive. We're, we're looking to form a partnership. Common, uh, just the common voter. You know, we're, we're, most of our contributions are small contributions. We're um, being way outraised by, at this point at least, so everybody please contribute, but we're being way outraised by um, the proponents of this pack but most of their money is coming from outside the city and outside the state, from organizations that are advocating and want to experiment with um, uh, elections here in Portland. And these organizations have tried it in other cities. It's not been very successful. Now they're trying in Portland because we're going through difficult times. Our money is coming from um, individuals living here in Portland. Uh, and in this fundraiser you're talking about, it was by uh, uh, hosted by Thomas Lauderdale, who is uh, nobody can say that's not a very progressive person. Um, and uh, Kathleen Sadat gave a speech uh, about this. Once again, no one can say that she's not a very progressive person. In fact, uh, a, a amazed by that individual and all she's accomplished in her life. Um, and, and the thing is, it's about people who just want solutions. They don't want more experimentational Portland, more things that will make life harder for people, more things that um, have a lot of negative consequences that we're crossing our fingers and hoping they don't actually come to fruition. They want something that works. Hey, you like Denver? Let's do what, what Denver is doing over here. You like Seattle? There's, all, there's a menu of things we could do. We chose none of those. And so for us, the reason that we have diversity and the reason we have outreach and the reason we have community and the reason we have so many small donations versus these huge donations from outside of the state is that it's about people who just want our government to work. Uh, and, and I think that's a very simple th thing. So common sense, you know, people who just want some common sense in our government. So. Um, you know, I'll, I'll do my plug, you know, please come to my website, commonsensegovpdx.com or Google Partnership for Common Sense Government um, and then and then check it out. We'd love to, uh, you know, invite you to like feature fundraisers and things like that. But more more than that, we want to have your voice and we want to have uh, that community and and move forward here in Portland together. And is there a donate button on there? Because we received a lot of questions about how people can contribute money to your pack. Yep, there's a contribute button, there's a volunteer button, and there's a supporter button. Um, please click on all three. So are you saying that the people who are pro this charter reform measure have their own PAC, their own political action committee? Yes, the uh, one of the organizations that from beginning um, to the end, even before the uh, commission had uh, gone to work, the charter commission had gone to work, is called uh, North Star. And um, they've been advocating for some of these changes for a while, whether through City Club or otherwise. 
and um, you know, very similar board members involved in all those organizations. And so they formed a political action committee. That political action committee uh, can actually, uh, they changed North Star to where they can actually endorse candidates as well, is my understanding. And that political action committee has been uh, raising money for quite some time. You know, I, I resigned from the Charter Commission and started this thing, so we're, at this point, a couple of years behind them, but I think our, our voice is one that's resonating. But, um, you know, they're, they're out there fundraising and, you know, doing the Google ads and Facebook ads and uh, streaming ads and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're quickly uh, fundraising right now, and, and certainly Thomas Lauderdale, uh, we had uh, about 150 people that showed up, about $15,000 now that we've made and, and money's still kind of coming in from that. But again, from single individual contributions uh, from people that are here in Portland that want the best for our city. Now, what is North Star? Uh, you'd, uh, you'd have to ask them. I'm not even sure. You don't what even do. know what that is. It's, it's a community organization. Their board has a bunch of rich people on it. Uh, and, and they're trying to influence politics here in Portland in various ways. Honestly, I never heard of them until this. And then I saw that some of the polling that we received was funded by North Star. And then I saw that they, um, that their people had formed, uh, this, uh, political action committee and, and that's how they came on my radar. I really have no idea what else they've done in Portland. Did, did North Star fund that poll that you mentioned that said that, that ranked choice voting was overwhelmingly popular? There, there were two polls. One was funded by North Star. One was funded by an organization, an organization called Represent Us, which is a national organization that has been pushing this uh, unique voting style in other places like Palm Desert, California, or otherwise. So where do you have any understanding of where the majority of the money is coming from on the other side of this issue from their in terms of donations to their pack because you're saying that they they have far outpaced you and if they have two years ahead of you i yes I, i'm sure they have where where are their biggest donations coming from there's an article in the Oregonian about that as well. Uh, they looked it up. So uh, Fair Vote, which is a national organization that pushes ranked choice voting, gave them substantial money. Um, there's another organization called um, Oregon Ranked Choice Voting or something like that. I think they're out of Corvallis. They gave them pretty substantial money. So we're seeing these uh, uh, special interests that have been pushing for this type of vote. And and want to say Eugene, I think, voted on ranked choice voting not too long ago, and it didn't pass there. So it's it's failed in some places. And um, and I think in Eugene, that was just a normal ranked choice voting, not this very unique one here. And now the money is flowing into Portland. And then there's also, um, I believe, uh, some board members, uh, some of the wealthy board members on North Star contributed money. And I don't think they live here in Portland anymore also. So yeah, there's some high wealth individuals and in some organizations that are the main contributors to that organization. And it sounds like a lot of those people have no stake in this city whatsoever other than to see their agenda um, push forth, which I is I mean, I, I hope concerning. they care about the city. I really do. You yeah, know, but this sounds I, like they don't live here. Yeah, yeah. And, and that that's concerning. Now, how does your PAC, how does your political action committee interact with Ulysses, which is what I understand Mingus's PAC is called, and and I think that Mingus Maps, who's our, one of our current city commissioners, ran on charter reform, and in fact, he is against this current ballot measure, Right. Yeah, and that leads to my earlier comment about bravery. Here's an individual 
who ran uh, one of his platforms was Charter Reform. And he actually started the Ulysses PAC in order to promote whatever came out of the Charter Commission. Once again, that education piece is huge. Without it, you're gonna have um, uh, disenfranchised voting. And then um, he heard, and the people on his committee heard about what was actually coming out of the Charter Commission. And, you know, now their mission has changed to actually propose something that works rather than something that will not and do damage. And here you have a city commissioner who's very popular. And once again, under this new proposal with only 25 percent of the vote need to get elected, Mingus Maps would be a lifelong member on our city council under this new proposal. Instead, he's out there speaking against it and saying we can do better. And so, you know, uh, having run for office, having met a lot of people, I certainly know the individuals that are working on the Ulysses Pack. And so I get updates about what their work is entails. I don't really know at this point what the final product will be, but uh, certainly being on the Charter Commission, I know what the testimony was. I know what people wanted. I know, um, you know, what people did not want. And so I have a fairly good educated guess about, you know, the, the options that would be available. So people are very hungry, and I'm sure this won't surprise you, to hear what the plan is going to be. Do we have a plan? October 3rd, uh, Mingus Maps will release that plan with the Ulysses Pack. Um, if I had a crystal ball, and once again, this is based on my own experience talking to people and kind of understanding some of the focus groups and early results from there, um, you know, people will have a choice. So there will probably be about three different options um, that they will propose and people can vote on those three options separately rather than the package that they've been, been given recently. One of the options is gonna be, once again, getting rid of the commission form of government, having a city manager under the mayor, you know, question as to whether the mayor will have some sort of real authority, whether to vote with single uh, with uh, city council or veto the city council. Say what you will about Ted Wheeler, but there certainly have been very good mayors in the history of Portland. There will be good mayors again, and so having that at large um, might be something that they're taking into consideration, having that at large voice on city council uh, discussions. And so that'll be one vote, city manager, what everybody in Portland wants. Um, I take that back. The, the polling said 3% of the people in Portland don't want um, change or form of government. So 97% of pe people in Portland want a city manager. Uh, the second choice will almost assuredly be district voting. So seven to nine, probably uh, smaller districts, uh, districts that, you know, Southwest, Northwest, five districts on the east side where the neighborhoods will be more contiguous, maybe along the lines of your, your school board voting um, areas or your neighborhood coalition areas, something where you already know what the districts might look like and um, already probably vote along those lines anyways. Um, and, and you would elect one person from each of those districts. Once again, up or down, that person does a good job for you, keep them in office. That person does a bad job for you, vote them out. Uh, and, and probably the third choice, and I don't know about this, but I think it'll be a third choice, would be ranked choice voting. But not this very unique ranked choice voting that's being proposed right now, but like the kind of ranked choice voting that's being used in you know, basically 40 other cities around the country where you still need to get a majority of the vote. You can vote, you can rank people, but at the end of the day, somebody needs to get a majority of the vote and represent the majority of the constituents in their district rather than only representing 25% of the constituents in their district. So why start your own political action committee? Why not just join Mingus's Ulysses PAC? 
you know, that was uh, an early consideration as well, um, because Mingus running for office, I think, is somewhat constrained about both what he can and can't say in public, but also time. Um, and so, you know, we are able to, you know, I, I have uh, three directors in my organization and we have a lot of people on um, our advisory committee. Those people can go out there to neighborhood association debates to um, uh, uh, to talk to people in whatever forums that there may be and to actually advocate for the change that's needed. Whereas um, Mingus and his organization can spend their time and money. Once again, money is pretty limited on both of our organizations on um, developing a better proposal and having the data to show that that will be a more viable option. In regard to the ballot measure that will be voted on in November, it's my understanding, and I think you said it'll cost $43 million to implement. Well, I think it's something like six plus million dollars to implement and the rest of it is the cost of you know, starting everything up, paying for the salaries, um, hiring people, finding office space, you know, buying computers. I don't know. It's a, that was just an estimate. No one knows for sure um, how much it is, but the city budget office came with that. Well, given the history of the city and city government, I think we can assume it'll be double or more. So how do we pay for this? Is that worked into the ballot measure? No. Um, and that's also another excellent point. You've actually done your homework. So um, that will come out of our general fund. Now, the general fund is not the budget of the city because most of that is about people's salaries, uh, office space, you know, paying for electricity, that sort of thing. A very small portion of our uh, budget is actually discretionary salary, and that comes from, you know, funding organizations that might be out there doing crime prevention work, you know, helping people in the community, that sort of thing. That's discretionary funding, and that money will have to come from that discretionary funding. Um, once again, we don't know how much money that is. It could be a lot. Now, the uh, flip side of that coin is, uh, as most of your listeners are probably aware, there certainly is um, a, a shrinking of the tax base here in Portland. People have been moving out, businesses have been leaving. Uh, a lot of the office space in Portland is is vacant. A lot of these buildings um, will be marked down in their value because, you know, unfortunately we still have uh, windows being shuttered and people not wanting to come to downtown Portland because of the current situation. And so in the next few years, our budget will actually, looks like it's actually going to shrink. So we're going to be spending more from a shrinking um, piece of the pie. So uh, it's going to be a very interesting question as to where that money comes from and what we would need to cut in order to pay for this. And have you heard any rumblings or when you were on count, uh, the commission, did you hear anything about where they were going to take from? I don't think anybody really cared. I think the most people in the commission, uh, their prime goal was to ensure that the salaries were going to be kept at the same amount because I think a lot of people there want to run for city council at some point in time. So uh, some people said it was a red line to not cut people's uh, salaries on city council, which if you're not marrying, managing bureaus, uh, what, what are you doing to earn your $130,000 a year? Uh, you know, it seems like with three people from each district, you're actually going to be doing much less work than the people in city council are right now. Uh, but if anything, there was a defense of the status quo and particularly about the spending without much regard as to where that money would come from. We have a fair amount of listeners that I heard from who would like to vote for charter reform and who think that we can amend it after the fact. And what do you say to those people? You know, there, there's not enough uh, 
political will right now to pick up trash in our streets. Um, good luck if this passes to get city council to put in the ballot something that you know opposes 50.1% of the vote in the city. Um, it's just not going to happen. It won't be until 2024 when people start realizing that uh, there might be some problems with this. And then years down the road when these problems come to fruition where there might be enough political will. And once again, you're going to be asking 12 people on city council who got elected under this new system to try to change this system for something else, which is difficult. Again, I, I applaud the people on city council right now. Um, that are you know standing up for still changing the system, but something more practical because I do think it goes against their financial interests. Um, but uh, at what point in time do you think twelve people will agree on amending something, even if it's not working very well? You said the NAACP is actually had actually come out against ranked choice voting. Did in I New York repeat City. in New York City? So one of the talking points that I have heard coming from this pro ballot measure side is that the proposal from the charter commission is going to be more equitable. What is your response to that? Uh, my response to that is uh, show me where that's worked. You know, we, we have a really good article from um, Shane Kavanaugh about Cambridge, and they're saying that proportionality is not something that they're seeing. Now, Cambridge, you know, has about 100,000 people. It's Harvard, MIT. They're certainly electing very progressive people over there. Uh, it has little to do about their voting system and a lot to do about their population. Very wealthy people over there, income much higher than Portland. Um but if you look at historically, you know, East Point, Michigan, for instance, they don't have uh, multi-member districts. They have, um, but they do have single transferable vote. The first time they did that in 2019, they had uh, four people run for office, uh, two people uh, for two city council spots. Two of those people were white, two of those people were black. 45% of the population of East Point, Michigan uh, was, was uh, black. And still, still, the two people that won the election were white individuals. Interestingly, the mayor who ran under a different system, not the single transferable vote, uh, a black mayor was elected. So, you know, uh, right now it's, it's all guesswork. And once again, the proponents are saying, trust us. This is all going to work. It's going to solve every ill in Portland. And, um, you know, coming from the partnership for common sense government, I'm like, how is that common sense? You know, show me where this is working. You know, they're saying, look at Malta. Now, I've never been to Malta. I have no idea what's going on in Malta. But show me where this is working in, in America, and I will gladly uh, join. But I have not seen that, and I've done a lot of research, and I've talked to a lot of people. Mingus has not seen that. He's done a lot of research. He has a Ph.D. in political science, and he doesn't think this is a good deal. Um, so let's have an honest conversation rather than making empty promises. We also had a lot of questions about people who understand that there have been documents that the pro charter commission people may have scrubbed or are being accused of heavily redacting. Do you know anything about this? Well, I, I think it was maybe they're referring to that poll that I mentioned, uh, you know, North, uh, not North Star, but wait a second. Um, it was North Star. So North Star funded this poll. North Star funded another poll. We saw the poll that was favorable to what North Star wanted to get done, 
but not the poll that showed only 1% of Portlanders wanted ranked choice voting and everybody or 72% wanted three different options rather than one option. That And what was presented to city council, which was even that was not presented to the Charter Commission, was scrubbed. So it took out that 1% ranked choice voting. It took out that 72%. It just showed that, you know, obviously people are unhappy with the current political situation. So, you know, why do one poll that you show to us and then one poll that you do not show to us? And that was one of the main reasons I resigned. When that came out in the press, I'm like, we're being spoon-fed information rather than understanding the reality of the situation. What else do you want people to know about this charter reform ballot measure that maybe we haven't already talked about? Because I think it's really important that we get educated about this. Yeah, so please um, reach out to either anybody at my organizations. There's an email on the website, and um, we'd be happy to uh, go where you live, where you gather, whether that be your neighborhood associations, your church, um, your uh, uh, you know uh, private uh, 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 get-togethers, and, and we'll discuss this because part of this, uh, which I, I really like this conversation with Kristen, is not only me talking about why we're doing what we're doing and what, what's best for the future of Portland and what we've heard from individuals, but also answering questions because your questions might be different. So I, th- I think we've covered a lot of ground here. I, I think, you know, certainly this is very much an experiment that, you know, no one can point to and say, well, here's been a success in the United States. Portland's been suffering from a lot of experiments. You know, think what you will about, you know, defunding the police and Measure 110 um, and, and you know, uh, um, some of the uh, uh, homeless policies that we have here. Um, but, you know, if we're going to experiment, make sure that we're doing something that we know will work and, and not, you know, pile failure upon failure. Um, so I, I will gladly go into detail or someone with my organization to individuals that can host, uh, you know, several people at their homes or otherwise. Uh, I've already had several debates at neighborhood associations. If you have not heard from us at your neighborhood associations, there's still time. Um, email them and say, we want to hear from Vadim. Uh, we want to hear from partial common sense government. And, and I think it's also a good idea to ask the people in the current commission to speak as well. So you get both sides. Um, I think, you know, you got to weigh the options and not just listen to one side. Well, I think that's that's very generous of you, and I, I think it's very level-headed of you, which is um, completely commiserate with everything that I, that I know about you. One of the things that I thought was interesting about your campaign and the opposition to your campaign um, is that not only were you and Renee labeled white supremacists, but another um, cancellation attempt lobbed at you. And you and I discussed this off air. I, I really think this is straight out of the Trump playbook. I think that these this white supremacist garbage lobbed against people like you and Renee and, and the argument that you two are pro-life is it's alternative facts. This is Kellyanne Conway's playbook. This is say things like crooked Hillary enough times and people will believe it. Um, what Let's just clear up the record here because I actually got some questions about this. Are you pro-life, Vidim? <laughs> I am 100% pro-choice, have been. When I was interviewed by the Lama Weekly with both uh, Joanne Hardesty there and Renee Gonzalez there, all three of us said we were pro-choice without hesitation. So I agree with you. You know, people throw out a bunch of lies and hope that, you know, enough of them stick or muddy the waters. The worst thing that happens to democracy is that people get turned off from voting because they're so unhappy with the dialogue that is being made. And I think that's also at play here. You know, people have 
individuals that they know will vote for them and their mission is to make sure that individuals don't vote for others so do your research and listen to people and and don't 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 read the twitter fear the twitter feeds and and think that they're reality i got a lot of questions about your thoughts about the war in ukraine and whether you have family members still there that you're concerned about or trying to get out thank you very much for that question uh my aunt uh still has an apartment in kiev uh, we did uh, get her out before the war started, so she's living with my cousin in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, wants to get back to Kiev um, sometime soon. We're just not sure what that looks like at this point. Well, I'm I'm sorry to hear about that. That must be really gut wrenching for you to watch all this. Yeah, and especially for people here in Portland, there's a very large uh, Ukrainian and Russian population here in Portland, and they've always gotten along really well. Um, always felt uh, part of a single community. Uh, you know, often they refer to themselves as Eastern Europeans or Slavic, and and this is causing um, rifts, political rifts. And I think people generally care about one another and want the best for their families and their city. And you know, when politics comes into play, all of a sudden things get upside down. And you know, that's 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 always been my goal. Is it's not about politics; it's about people. Uh, and I think uh, you know, uh, it's it's a it's a rough time nationally, internationally. Um, but, you know, we still have a lot of Ukrainian flags flying here in Portland. And uh, thank everybody for all that support. Now, you said that um, you were assured when you were running for office that there are places that homeless people can go. Um, where do you have any ideas? I mean, obviously, we have things like Bybee Lakes, which is great. Where else can could potentially like let's say you were in the general election here and you were running against Joanne, what is your argument about where homeless people can go? Is it commensurate with this safe rest village stuff in neighborhoods or or what would you do? No, I mean, there's no question we have to scale things up. Um, You know, safe rest villages are uh, an interesting segue for a certain, uh, uh, certain small group of the homeless population, but you can't expand that citywide. Um, you know, it would take about 100 safe rest villages to house uh, the people that we have here. The expense is about $70,000 per individual. We don't have the money. We don't have 70 places for people to, or 100 places for people to be. Um, you know, there was a coin interview recently. I don't know whether it's aired already, but they had uh, a panel of speakers, including myself, talking about homelessness and the problems that we're having in Portland, and possibly some of the Solutions. There are people working in the um, in, in the community on this, and including Alan Evans with Bybee Lakes, um, and, and there was also you know Ted Wheeler um, and uh, Dan Ryan were there, uh, Deborah Kafuri were there, and and some people from neighborhoods. I, I don't know how I got in the mix, but and I, I think there were some interesting things that were said. One of the most interesting things that Coin did was they interspersed uh, the dialogue with. Um, San Diego and the shelter models they had over there. There was one shelter that had 300 individuals and they spoke with um, individuals. It was hard to tell exactly because it was being recorded at the same time, but um, they spoke with the people in that shelter model and there were success stories. There were people that were helping themselves get back on their feet. There were people that were able to have a warm bed. There was none of this horror stories about, um, you know, putting people into jails or whatever that is being spread around here. There were success stories and they were actually had so much success. They were expanding another shelter with 150 people. Um, and so San Diego, you walk around downtown San Diego, you don't see what you see here. That's um, exactly right. I was just there with one of my best friends and she and I walked between 10, 
10 miles. I mean, the lowest we mount we walked, I think, was seven miles one day. But, you know, we were able to walk all over the city in a way that we can't do anymore here. Yeah. And that's uh, that's that's something that people feel all around. Um, at the same time, you know, like I said, 120 people died last year on the streets. Most of them are drug addiction. Ten murders on the streets last year. About, um, I believe, 13 percent of all the people who were murdered were on the streets. There's horrors upon horrors, and they could be solved in the way that San Diego is solving them, in the way Miami is solving them, in the way Houston is solving them, in the way Salt Lake City. The list goes on and on and on. There are solutions out there, and we have places, you know, if San Diego and their housing market, which is way more expensive than Portland, can find space for shelters, I guarantee you we can find space for shelters. I mean, we can even find places to park RVs here in Portland. Um, you know, uh, Beaverton has RV parking. Um Vancouver has RV parking for people that are living out of RVs, um, and they provided services in those places. We can't even do that here in Portland. So we can do what people around us can do. We can do what people in other cities can do. Don't believe that Portland somehow um, has in that ability. We have the people, the manpower, the money to do all that. I have heard that one of the reasons that we can't build more shelter, or we can't build more housing is because of the urban growth boundary. Do you have any understanding of the urban growth boundary and how that interacts with our policies? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult to build out more housing with the urban growth boundary, but there are spaces right now. Um, I, you know, I was speaking to one developer and he's like, I went to the county, we have space, and it's not too far out. Um, we have space that we offered the county, but the county said, no, we know better than you. We need people that are closer. This was a shelter in Central East Side. Um, we need places that are closer to the core of the city. So even though you're offering, and they actually offered money as well um, to help run this space. Now, I might not have been enough money to build out a shelter or whatever, but there, there was money that was offered, but the land was offered. And the county's like, we know better. And this thing, we, we need to work together. We can't be, you know, us versus them. The county knows better. The city knows better. You know, the uh, uh, service providers know better. We have to work with neighborhood associations. We have to work with businesses. We have to work with people that are doing salt cleanups. We have to work with people that are out there passing around water bottles and socks to people living in the streets. We all have to come together rather than this us versus you type of mentality that we keep having here in Portland. How do we do that? Uh, elect somebody that's willing to cross boundaries. That's not vilifying other people that you need. You know, you mentioned earlier, we need taxes from, you know, everybody, including the rich people. Um, you know, what, what good does it do to like vilify a certain segment of our community because it scores you points? Look for people that are trying to bring individuals, groups together. Uh, and that's, that's what we need. We need healing right now, not more strife. What do you think of the criticism of these safe rest villages, that they are not screening for felons, that they're not screening for sex offenders, and that they're purposely being put in neighborhoods and next to schools? I've never heard that they were purposely being put next to schools. That's that's pretty odd. But I, I do think that's, you know, segueing from what I just said. Uh, why not? work with the neighborhood associations? Why not get a good neighborhood agreement? You know, you can't work with thousands of people in their homes to make sure that everyone is satisfied, but there's ways of, you know, grassroots representation that we already have here in Portland that's worked for us for decades, you know, and that is the neighborhood associations. When they built the Safe Rest Village in downtown, one of the first people that came out with open arms was downtown neighborhood associations. Walt Weiler, the president of the organization, said, we will work with you. We will help you to make it 
happen. We know we already have people out in the streets working with homeless individuals. We know their needs. Um, let us help you. And uh, and I, I think that their voice was not heard for a long time. And then part of it was included. You know, same thing in the Pearl. Um, you know, why exclude populations because you think you have all the answers? Um, let's include everybody because everybody knows we're going through a really hard time here in Portland. Everybody's already knows somebody who's working on it. Let's be inclusive rather than exclusive on that effort. Well, and when, when you said, I don't know about purpose and exit schools, I should clarify. The, the reason I said that is because, of course, there's one being put um, next to an international school. And I think the and, and uh, the location was purposely chosen. But I think that the the argument from the school was, like you said, they, they wanted a good neighbor agreement. And the argument from the school was, look, we've got kids coming in here. Can we just at least get an agreement that we're not going to put sex offenders here? And they just couldn't get Dan Ryan to commit to that. What do we do now? A good question, I think, is um, and, and a practical question is, what do we do about these homeless felons and sex offenders? Where do we put these people? Well, I mean, there, there are places where um, they can get services that are not next to schools. Um, you know, and if they're breaking laws, then, uh, you know, the police need to get involved. Uh, you know, for instance, you've, you've heard about that one individual that, you um, uh, 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 assaulted uh, a tourist uh, and uh, and a five-year-old child of that tourist. Now, you know, I don't know what that person's um, individual um, impairments were, uh, but that's that's just not right. We can't have that happening in Portland. What's interesting is that person would have gone back or was going back on the street, um, but the tourist was Asian, and so it was classified as a hate crime rather than just a normal crime, and that person was kept in jail. And, you know, if someone assaults a five-year-old kid, that person should not be out in public. That person should get either mental health services or be in jail. You know, that's, that's a, we can't have people hurting kids. Um, and, uh, and same thing for here. You know, if we're putting shelters next to schools, let, let's make sure that these people are not going to hurt kids. You know, even there's a, if there's a chance, you know, these are children, why, why take that chance? You talked about the Built for Zero program, and I think there's a fair amount of concern that this is just another housing first policy. What do you know about Built for Zero? And is it something, it sounds like it's something you support. Is it something you support? I, I do. I mean, it's it's not um, it's not a housing first policy per se, although it, it would play with, you know, housing being expanded. Um, but it's, it's a methodology for getting people off the streets and into some form of housing, some form of services, and making sure that you do it in the way that is holistic, that helps um, both people living in the streets and their neighborhoods. So one of it is uh, a better database uh, to make sure that you know what contacts people have had with service providers, doctors, mental health, what prescriptions they have, what sort of where, what areas they've lived in before to make sure that there's a continuity of care. And so it's not always uh, a fresh start for everybody. Uh, so th- it's really big to have, um, you know, in some cities have had an app where if an individual has contact with a person that might have uh, uh, mental health breakdowns or drug addiction or otherwise, or just needs housing, you can use that, that app to get them the help that they need. 
Um, and also, um, it's making sure that once people are brought to services, to housing, that there's not this kind of sweep thing that goes on where people are moved and then they come right back. It's, it's sequential. So, you know, get people into housing, but make sure that um, those areas are off limits for people to camp, to do drugs, to do all those things, and then move on to the next area and move on to the next area. And so what we see is, you know, there's certainly various success stories, and that's been one of the success stories in some places. Um, and, and, you know, uh, uh, permanent housing is, is one aspect of that, but so is shelter space temporarily. It just means how do you get people to the services in a way that you can replicate citywide? I think one question though, is how do we deal with people that was, you know, somebody, my friend who I think you know, uh, Kevin Dahlgren would call service resistant homeless people. How do we deal with people who need incentives to get off drugs or, or engage in mental health treatment? I mean, some of these people, Vadim, I know you have interacted with some of these people as we all do, as we traverse the city of Portland and, some of these people don't know their name. This is this. It's the saddest thing ever. If most of you have been downtown and know about this, but if you haven't, and, and you're going to opine about downtown, or you're going to opine about homelessness, you should really come down here and walk around and and see what what the rest of us are seeing. I mean, some of these people are 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 unknowingly defecating. This, this is pretty severe stuff. How do we? deal with with people who are not functional i mean that for that conversation we need the county and the state to to chip in um you know as you mentioned we're not dealing with that well uh an individual in old town uh was naked for uh, uh most of the day sleeping naked even in the dead of winter people in that area had called um uh, the the hotlines to try to get help uh, because she was not in imminent danger of causing harm to herself, which sleeping naked in the winter seems uh, like that would be the case. But and finally, um, one of the uh, bar owners there, Dan Linson, uh, was able to speak with her during a moment of lucidity and get a contact um, number for a relative. That relative actually put a 72-hour hold on the individual, was able to come and get her and bring her home and get her the help that she needed. Why does it take um, an individual business owner in Old Town to make that connection when for months people were trying to get the city and the county to make that connection? Um, it's, it's tough. It's a tough question. You know, we, we certainly have um, uh, a, a statewide system that makes it very difficult for people with mental health needs to be put um, into the services that they need. And sometimes drug addiction and mental health overlap as well. Uh, and so that that is certainly a long term, but not all people who are homeless have mental health crises. Some of them are out in the streets because they fall in hard times. And those people are getting quite a bit of help. If you look at the point in time count, we're doing a great job getting uh, housing vouchers, rent vouchers for people that want to get back on their feet and you know go back to work and things yeah, like that. Yeah, I don't that. think most of those people are out on the streets. At least that's not what I see with my own eyes. I'm mm -hmm. not seeing people looking for services out on the streets. Mm -hmm. I, I'm seeing people... Who, pro who certainly need services, and we have tons of them, but can't, somehow we can't bridge the two. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, 
for that, you know, there's also people that have mental health crises. There's also people with drug addiction and there's people that that's a lifestyle, you know, and there's also a criminal element that is feeding on that, you know, that's selling exactly drugs, prostitution, all those things, you know, so uh, you talk to anybody that's lived in the streets, they've been victimized by other people living in the streets as well. So there's an element out there that um, financially benefits uh, from what is happening in the city. Um, and those are all solvable different ways. But you mentioned Kevin Dahlgren, you know, yeah, I, I we heart Portland, I think is his, his organization. So everybody Google, we heart Portland, Google Kevin Dahlgren. He's done a great job for Gresham. You know, you, you do, you walk the Springwater corridor in Portland and there's tents and syringes and all kinds of stuff. You walk into Gresham and it's uh, totally different, much cleaner. So, uh, you know, what, what they're doing and what's worked in places like Gresham and San Diego is, you know, the whole carrot stick approach. People will come out and say, we'll get you whatever services you need, food, housing, medical care, mental health care, drug addiction. We will link you to those services, but you can't just live for years on the streets as you're doing where you're harming yourself, where you're harming other people. If you're breaking laws, we will put you to jail. You know, San Diego has a van with a sheriff's office, police officer, and uh, uh, a social worker, mental health practitioner, they go out to the campus and say, we'll do whatever you can, but if you're breaking laws, we will enforce our laws. And if you talk to Kevin, um, the vast majority of people, when they're presented with that option, that you can't just live out here forever, you have to find services, you have to find housing, we will help you with that. Most choose that. Um, on, on Portland, we um, let people you know, not make a choice. And, and that's why whatever system that Kevin is, has done in Gresham is not working here because, you know, not making the choice is still the same thing as choosing to live in the streets. Some people have mental health impairments that prevent them from making a choice. Some people are so addicted to drugs that they're choosing um, to live next to their dealers or otherwise. Um, you know, I went to um, a, a shelter um, next to a little tiny village that was built as well in uh, East Portland. And there was a bunch of people camping outside um, of the shelter. And so I spoke with the shelter owner over there. I'm like, so why do people, some people come in and some people do not. He's like, the ones that are trying to get back on their feet, they come in here and they sleep. The ones out there, they're, they're so uh, entrenched in their drug lifestyle. They know they can't do the, do the drugs in the church here. And so they would rather stay on the streets there because they can continue this pattern. And, and we got to break that pattern. You know, it's all about habits. People have good habits and bad habits. If we're in Enforcing bad habits that will continue if we start teaching people good habits and and opening up doors for them to to grow upon those good habits we, we can do a lot in the city I, I'm, I'm certain of that is this built for zero program gonna triage people because you know Vadim one of the things that concerns me about this point in time count is that people are self-identifying they're self-identifying as mentally ill or not I mean don't you need an MD or two or three to really sit down and do a mental health evaluation to determine whether or not somebody is or is not suffering from mental illness. And isn't that important for us if we're gonna address this crisis? It is, and that's one of the challenges going forward is actually being able to hire enough people. You know, the money is out there. Your, your tax money, Portland. Um, oh, there's plenty of it. Plenty of it. You know, we're, we're getting, uh, you know, in recent years, we've been gotten federal money to help out with that. Certainly we're getting statewide money plus the taxes that we have here. Um, hundreds of millions are floating around to do what's needed to be done. Um, but part of that is also, you know, how do you hire the people that need to have that done? So there needs to be a bridge between where we are right now 
and where, you know, if all things go well, we can be maybe 10 years from now. The focus seems to be, you know, where we need to be 10 years from now, which is, you know, a free house for everybody and uh, wraparound services. In the meantime, people are waiting and dying in the streets and it's not helping anybody. So, but with respect to the mental health practitioners, yeah, we do need to have someone that analyzes them. But I guarantee um, most of the people that are living in the streets have had some interaction with OHSU or a hospital or otherwise. So it's a revolving door. It's a revolving door, but that continuum of care is what we need to establish. So every time they go in a hospital, there's not, you know, a, a, a renewal of what their needs are. Uh, and that's part of, you know, as I understand it, built for zero. I'm, I'm not pushing built for zero here. I'm saying that that is one option. You know, Keith Wilson is well great. known. He's been talking about that quite a bit here in Portland. But, um, you know, the part of that is you, you get a better idea of what people's needs are, where they've encountered service providers or even the law before, um, what their difficulties have been, and then keep on building upon that. And we're just not doing that. Yeah, I think that's great. So is there anything else you want to say? Anything else you want people to know? Any other projects that you're working on that we should know about? You are so community involved. It's it's hard to keep track of it all. So tell us, tell us anything else you want us to know. No, uh, really, my next project is going to be, um, you know, making sure that our neighborhood associations are supported. Um, you know, in the past, we've had uh, a, a meeting of all the neighborhood associations where we can gather and talk about the needs, find that commonality, make sure those needs are heard at City Hall. That hasn't happened a lot. We've gone through several years where the city has actually, you know, directly fought the ability of neighborhood associations to represent people that live there. And so, you know, right now I'm, I'm pretty busy and, you know, I actually have a day job and things like that, but, um, down the road, you're actually a judge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I stay up late at night on, on many nights, but, um, that will be something. So, um, all of you who serve on neighborhood associations and are out there talking to your neighbors and trying to do the right thing for everybody there, I, I hope to be able to speak with every one of you down the road. Uh, and, and also, um, maybe let's all meet together and, um, Discuss what our needs are, so whoever's in office in City Hall um, will will be able to reflect those needs. And particularly with this charter reform education, people on neighborhood associations and just citizens generally, they can have fundraising parties for you. They can have you come speak about charter reform to their neighbors uh, via neighborhood associations. They can have living room parties in the same way that they did for you during the primary campaign when you were running for city council, right? I mean, I, people should reach out to your your political action committee. Yeah, please do. I, you know, I, I, I had a debate at Sunnyside. Uh, there's a debate coming up in downtown. Um, you know, there's been quite a few neighborhoods that have reached out and asked for, you know, either me or both sides to come speak. Uh, we can make that happen. I, I think, you know, you are the people that know the needs of your areas and your neighbors. Um, you know, let, let's talk about what those needs are and, and how the charter can be improved in order to uh, make sure those needs are met. Well, thanks, Vadim. I really appreciate you coming in. This has been a, the conversation has been, um, you know, both challenging, but also really hopeful. And I so appreciate the work that you've done in the community. I really appreciate your political action committee. I hope people go and donate and volunteer. And thanks for the conversation. Kristen, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for everything you're doing out there. I, I think you're bringing a spotlight on, on voices that uh, are not being heard very often, but are in the majority here in Portland. And um, I look forward to listening to your future episodes. Thanks, Vadim.